and Kevin Grunewald. Uh, we're down on the river right now. Kelsey just got bit by a rattlesnake. I've called 911. I need you to go out to the gate on the highway and show the paramedics into the property. They have the gate combination, but they're going to need some direction on the way in. If you get this, please just shoot me a text. Let me know you got it. Or give me a call. See if you can reach me, and we'll go from there. Um and that, my friends, is what you call a hook. But you're going to have to wait and listen to this whole podcast if you want to hear the story about the rattlesnake. I'm going to read you a line out of a book called The War of Art. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goth's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. Begin now. The War of Art is the June book in my monthly box of goodies. So if you want to get more reading in your life, if you want to support this podcast, you can head over to kyle.surf, and once a month I will send you a book that I love along with some Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD tincture. The tincture is personally my favorite product that Santa Cruz Medicinals makes. I use it most nights before I go to bed. I put a few drops on my tongue and it helps me sleep better, helps me with sore muscles. Um, so you can head over to kyle.surf and sign up for the monthly box of goodies. Or if you just want to get CBD on your own, you can go to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10 and get 10% off any order. I'm coming to you from Boulder, Colorado, where I'm about to head north into Wyoming and then Montana on this solo multi-month trip of mine. If you are in the Jackson Hole area or then up in the Bozeman area, you can shoot an email to info at kyle.surf. And if the stars align, would love to meet up for a high five. Um, I've been meeting up with a lot of uh, listeners of this podcast and having a really good time doing it, doing a lot of hiking, um, fly fishing, learning how to do that slowly but surely. Still full kook, mountain biking a ton, climbing, just hanging with good people and crashing in the car. The other night, I uh, I got invited to go to this this little party, and there was this group of, of people there, and they're like, "Oh, hey, like, who are you? What do you do?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm uh, I'm a writer, and I live out of my car." And they're like, "Oh." Uh, they kind of tilted their heads and like <laughs> meandered away from the homeless guy. And I was like, oh, wow, I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> it's This is so – it's so much better than most people know. I really recommend that everyone lives out of their car for a little bit because what happens is you st you just – say yes to so many more opportunities because life becomes simplified and I'm writing a lot. I'm podcasting a lot. Um, if I start to smell bad, I jump in one of the many frigid Colorado rivers and clean myself off. Um, and it, and it removes the fear of being homeless. That's another thing is I, you know, I'm subletting my room in Santa Cruz. So technically I don't have a house right now. And it it kind of forces if it it focuses your mind to realize what is important which is a healthy mind healthy body and good friends in my humble opinion um it's it's a little bit um like a i don't know like a near death experience or a psychedelic experience in that it kind of just reorients you to what's important um so i recommend it Go sleep out in your car. Go sleep out in nature. 
will make your life better. Speaking of a healthy body, I am bringing on a new sponsor to this show, RPM Fitness. This is a company that I've worked with for years, but they recently just came on as an official sponsor of the show. RPM Fitness is a NorCal-based active lifestyle brand founded in the idea that legit, purposeful, functional training is the foundation of a truly full, adventurous life. And I agree. They make jump ropes. They make workout shorts. I use their jammers as well. They're, it's like a kind of like a mid-length speedo that allows you to glide through the water like Aquaman. But um, in these ads, I'm going to be giving you a workout um, because I've been doing a lot of morning workouts. It's as, it's as close to a magic pill as anything I've found. If I'm feeling a little groggy, a little blue, doing a morning workout has been probably the most important habit that I've incorporated in my life um, in the last few years. And I do it most mornings. So the workout that I've been doing on the road is I have a dumbbell. I have a little yoga mat. I set it outside of my car, usually in some kind of state park. And then I have an interval timer on my phone and I set the interval timer for 16 minutes. So it's a 16 minute workout. And the reason that I do it in such a short amount of time is that I want to do this pretty much every day. And if I say, okay, it's just 16 minutes, I have way less excuses than if I'm planning on doing a fucking two hour workout every morning. So I set an interval timer. It's just a free app to two minutes. Um, and then I do 15 burpees and then I do 20 kettlebell swings with this 35 pound dumbbell. And that usually takes about a minute, minute and 10 seconds to complete that. And then I use this RPM fitness jump rope and I do jump ropes for the rest of the two minutes until the timer goes off, goes beep, beep. And then I do another 15 burpees, 20 kettlebell swings and jump rope. And again, it's a 16 minute workout and it gets you gases you. You can just ask my podcast guest today. He, uh, I was hanging with Kevin and we were doing a few of these workouts and they're freaking awesome. So if you want to check out RPM fitness, you can head over to rpmfitness.com, type in the code name, Kyle 10, get 10% off your first order. Um, they make good stuff and it helps you stay fit. And I'm happy to spread that message. I also want to send a big thank you to the Nell Newman Foundations for supporting each and every one of these podcasts. The Nell Newman Foundation supports bold, unpopular, and iconoclastic ideas. Um, and this month, we are highlighting the group Save the Waves. I'm an ambassador of Save the Waves, and they protect coastal ecosystems worldwide. And we recommend that you sign up and volunteer with Save the Waves because um, they're doing legit work. And here's a quick message from their founder, Nick Strong Svetich. Hey, Kyle, this is Nick from Save the Waves calling in here. Uh, as you know, Save the Waves is dedicated to protecting surf ecosystems around the world. And uh, we have some pretty good news from the place where you learned how to surf in Santa Cruz, Cowles Beach. For over 10 years, it's uh, routinely been classified as California's dirtiest beach and thanks to our efforts along with our partners at the city and county of Santa Cruz we've been able to bring the bacteria and contamination levels way way down and this year finally it has been uh, taken off the list of heal the bay so our efforts are actually bearing fruit and uh, it's nice to have some good news to share every now and again amidst the 
horrendous news that seems to be surrounding us on a daily basis. So thank you for your support as an ambassador, and we're also really thankful for the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting us. And if people want to learn more about Save the Waves, uh, go to savethewaves.org. This episode of the podcast is with Kevin Grunewald. Kevin is a Colorado-based conservationist, hunter, and angler. His winding career path in conservation biology has seen him teaching students how to trap bats in the outback of Australia, guiding clients to experience bear country in Alaska, dissecting zebrafish embryos in a university laboratory in Wisconsin, and most recently, conducting and sharing the benefits of sound ecological land stewardship practices on natural on nature preserves in California and Colorado. He, in his current role as land steward of the Nature Conservancy, Kevin works and lives at a remote field station and nature preserve called Phantom Canyon. He spends his days working in, exploring, and sharing the wonder of the natural landscapes that he aspires to conserve. Kevin is a newer friend of mine um, and is he's a brilliant person, straight up. Um, he is so fucking smart and not smart just in in the book smart, but um, he's deeply insightful, and his insights really impact his actions. Um, he knew what he wanted to do from a, a young age, which was be out in nature, study it, and communicate the majesty of it, um, and he is well on his way. Um, so I'm just honored to know this guy, and I hope that you all – Really enjoy this episode with my friend, Kevin Grunewald. Here we go. All right, so you're feeding zebrafish. Yeah, that's right. So um, while an undergraduate student at UW-Madison... I started at a zoology lab, um, basically as an animal care tech, just feeding zebrafish. And the reason you study zebrafish is because their embryos are transparent, so you can see them developing. So I was supporting this research by taking care of the animal population. And anyway, you asked that question because you want to know about my podcast listening history. Yeah, I was like, when was the first podcast you ever listened to? Yeah, and as you can imagine, that sort of work, um, it's stimulating for about 15 minutes. So, <laughs> so you listen to podcasts and uh, one of the podcasts, which at the time I don't think they called it a podcast that I turned to, was this radio show um, produced in Australia called Hamish and Andy where these two comedian funny guys talk and I loved it. And um, years later, after graduating, um, a little coincidence, I ended up working at an office in Melbourne, Australia, like two blocks away from where they record this show. What were you doing there? I was working for a company called Earthwatch. So after I graduated from school, um, I bartended for a little while. And then I accepted a year-long internship for a company called Earthwatch Australia. Um, I was working as their science intern. Okay. And what do they do? They guide citizen science and promote citizen science projects in the field. Um, yet citizen science is this concept and really this growing notion that you should involve citizens in science and it was a pretty holistic thing you know we would take students into the field to 
trap bats and um, just check out the population dynamics of bats. Actually, one of the projects was to see how bats were using highway crossing structures. This is in Melbourne. This is outside and around Melbourne. Actually, they work throughout the country, but I was doing a lot of projects in the Melbourne area and based there. And then we worked with corporate bankers from HSBC doing freshwater monitoring and to show, you know, that type of person wetlands in Sydney and the value of those ecosystems was really pretty profound. I mean, for me, I was 22, so that was a, just a cool experience. And beyond that, I mean, little projects in the outback. And as a zoology student in school, I was just a kid in a candy shop in Australia, as you can imagine. So what did you major in? In zoology. Okay. Yeah, I flip-flopped around a little but ended up there. Nice. Um, it, it really is amazing seeing people's minds shift when you take them out into nature for the first time. I mean, it's like a, it's almost like, you know, showing someone what, you know, uh, it looks like in space. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always like to try to put myself in people's shoes, but that was a tricky situation because I grew up, um, knowing my way around the woods and, uh, it was just, you know, spending time in a wetland, it was nothing new to me, but People in Sydney who work in a bank, in some cases, not all of them, some of them were great and they were they were super interested and had been out there before. But some of them, um, you know, they were bit by a few mosquitoes and they were like, I'm ready to call it. Yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, just to think of those wet spots in your city as an ecosystem that actually not only supports biodiversity, but actually provides services back to the city. You know, slowing down runoff, storing carbon, really cooling the city in some situations. Um, yeah, that was really rewarding to talk to people and show them that. I Do you know what Knowles is? Yeah, uh, if we're talking about yeah. the National Outdoor Leadership School. Right, yeah, yeah. So, so Knowles is in uh, San Francisco, and, you know, I, I was talking with a leader from there. He's like, man, we'll, we'll take some kids out from from Hunter's Point in San Francisco, which is like one of the last lower income areas there. You know, there's a lot of gun violence and these kids grew up in really violent areas and the first night in the woods to them is terrifying. Yeah. So it's like, it's, there's imagined fear versus real fear. (laughs) And, and nature, I think for the most part is fairly safe. If you take the, if you take a few precautions. Yeah. And you can be a pretty experienced outdoorsmen and still have scary nights in the woods right um but i think that scariness is good for you because you'll find that you tend to get scared about nothing and a lot of that fear you work up in your own head i mean currently we're sitting in my cabin uh somewhat in the middle of nowhere and i spend a lot of time out here alone and you you can you can scare yourself you know what are the thoughts that come up Oh, man. I mean, speaking of podcasts, I'm really like so many people. I've gotten sucked into these true murder podcasts. (laughs) And after a while, you're just like, what am I doing? (laughs) I am putting all these horrific stories in my head that are so rare. But I can't look away. (laughs) Totally. And so uh, those are some of the thoughts that come up. I don't think about um, bears and lions and snakes very often. Um, and, and freak myself out about that. But, um, yeah, you got to be aware of what kind of media you're taking in and, and realize how that affects your psyche if fear is something that you want to manage. 100%. So when you majored in zoology, what was there a decision that you made to then go to Melbourne directly after college? I was applying to everything and anything that was related to my interest, which was uh, generally biology. Um, 
it, it was a little bit of a circuitous route to the conservation biology. Um, I was interested in being a veterinarian in school. I was in the pre-vet club. I got into zoology thinking that would set me up for veterinary work. And then I started um, working in research specifically first and got a job at the National Wildlife Health Center, which is in Madison. And there I worked at a biosafety level three facility, which is pretty intense. I mean, it's one step down from the full spacesuit hazmat situation. Um, so I was working with disease agents that humans can catch stuff like the plague. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, um, bird flu and other things were in this lab. So you were wearing a respirator at all times. And so that was its whole, whole own trip. But I was exposed to a lot of um, veter veterinary researchers there. And for a variety of reasons, I started to realize that I needed more experience in the working world before I decided something like, I'm going to be a veterinarian and commit the next six years of my life and get in a whole bunch of debt to find myself um, uninterested in that field. So I started to realize that I need to cultivate some life experience here and expose myself to new stuff. And there were two classes in college that I remember just making my head spin when I walked out. They were public health and conservation. Specifically, the course was called Extinction of Species. And this was stuff that I just fell asleep thinking about. So it was so engaging to me. And so after I graduated in zoology, um, I, like I said, I bartended for a little while and just applied for all kinds of stuff related to those two classes. Cause I thought, man, if it makes my head spin when I'm in class, a career could be so engaging. And that was important to me. And so I actually visited a few public health schools thinking that's where I might end up. I was looking at epidemiology. I was really interested in how diseases spread, which makes me wonder how I'd be involved in the current <laughs> yeah. crisis if I had gone down that path. Instead, <laughs> I'm in a cabin in the middle of nowhere. Dodged a bullet on that one. Instead, <laughs> yeah. you went into conservation. Yeah, hopefully I'm making a difference uh, in either pursuit. But um, anyway, a long answer here. But um, yeah, I applied to anything and everything. And I really got lucky when I applied for this internship in Australia. And it was it was it was going to expose me to a new place. It was going to expose me to new people. It was going to expose me to a field that I was interested in and actually is in the family a little bit. And so it was a no brainer when it was offered to me, but I first applied just out of interest. Hmm. Did you have to, did you write down like a pro and con list or something like making that decision? Or did you talk to a, a person to actually take that plunge? No, I was kind of like, I'm ready for something big, something different. I, uh, I didn't study abroad in college, and that was something I always valued. I knew people who had, and their stories, and, and just their experiences exposing themselves to new settings. Sounded like a really, just a great way to build your own character. And since I didn't study abroad, I was looking to travel after college, and so... Um, it just t checked all the boxes. I am a pretty rational and pragmatic pro and con list person now, but then, man, it was all gut. It was all intuition, and uh, I never looked back, and I re still don't regret it. It was great. You grew up in the outdoors, though. Yeah, grew up in Wisconsin, um, just outside Madison, and hunting, fishing, all of it. Camping. Your dad was a hunter. My dad was a hunter, big time. Yeah, he just uh, a couple of years ago was telling us that it was his 50th deer season in Wisconsin. Wow. And what kind of deer? Whitetail deer in Wisconsin. It's such a strong tradition in that part of the world. And he is the man when it comes to deer hunting. Um, so he really, it was important to him to at least expose us to that world growing up. And uh, I think for all of us, it was a little intimidating first growing up because my dad 
Um, he takes it really seriously, which when you're, I mean, you can start hunting when you're, I don't know, I think 12 years old in Wisconsin. When did you start? Probably around 12. Yeah. And I think I was shooting a bow for long before then. But anyway, um, to, to step into the woods with your dad, with the idea in mind that we're going to go out and shoot an animal when you're that young is it's scary and it's awesome and it's powerful. And it was so cool. And I wouldn't trade those experiences with my dad for anything, but I don't know if right away it was like, I'm going to do this forever. I think it took a little while working with him in the the woods to kind of learn what he was seeing before I was like, this is the most engaging thing I've ever done. And I want to do this forever. And looking back now, that exposure was pivotal in my life. So yeah, I, I grew up with that kind of stuff in my life. And, um, yeah, I did a podcast with Jake Muse, the founder of Maui Nui Venison, sure. badass, you know, uh, bow hunter. And he was telling me a story about how he, he's really excited to take his kids out surfing. He has a little boy and uh, surfing hunting. <laughs> he's, he's excited to take him out, uh, hunting. And he, and he said something along the lines of, I want them to have the experience of, of shooting an animal and having it get away and to really feel that responsibility as a child and the intensity of it. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting perspective to have, but it's one that's not always available for kids in our society now because it's, it's relatively nerfed. You don't always need to, um, feel the, um, consequences of your actions yeah oh totally that resonates with me i can think of i mean this can make me sound like a bad shot if i bring up all the stories where that happened no i I think of one in particular and it was really the only one that got ugly but man that is going to stick with me forever and it was a when i look back at it now valuable experience and it's not the only way to learn ownership for your actions but um the situation (laughs) I was, um, excuse me. I was, uh, learning to bow hunt and we learned with recurve bows. My dad was really interested in getting us to learn, um, instinctive shooting. So we didn't have sights. We were shooting with stick bows. I want to say this was just above the legal poundage for a bow. So probably 35, 40 pounds. And how old were you? Uh, well, I would have been in high school, so probably 15, 15. or yeah, so. Yeah, like a freshman in high school. Yeah, 15. it was early. Um, and I was pretty good with that bow, but God, apparently not good enough. I shot in an animal that was quartering towards me, so that means its head is closer to you, and it's kind of turned at a 45-degree angle. And so... When you, so set up the situation. So, okay, so, sorry. Yeah, yeah, when you're on. in Wisconsin, you're shooting from a tree stand usually, um, unlike this western hunting stuff, typically. That's generalization but so i was in a 15 foot tree stand um and it's a cool way to hunt in some ways i think people kind of scoff at it here in the west but when you can just sit in a tree and watch the world go by i mean that is absorbing in its own right and uh i know a lot of hunters that really value that experience but anyway on this morning doing just that and uh sure enough crunch 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 turn around there's a deer right there and it's with another and um it was a doe. I had a doe tag and uh, I was looking to fill that tag. So they walked up and started to nibble on some, some grass. I'm probably about, ooh, I'm going to be honest here. It was probably only about 25 yards away. So not a real poke, but when you're in a tree stand, you're 15 years old. 
I don't know. It was a challenge. Do you practice shooting from tree stands? Because that seemed like that seems like a real difficult angle to shoot from. You should, and we did. Right. Um, yeah, and I know that when you shoot a bow, you need to think about horizontal distance rather than that hypotenuse distance, you know, direct flight from you to the animal. Because it's that horizontal distance over which that arrow actually drops through the force of gravity. And so you do need to shoot from a tree stand to get used to that, to realize that that animal uh, is really not as far away as I think. Or at least I should be shooting at it like it's not as far away as it looks. Um, So you should practice that. And I know all kinds of people that they'll shoot from all the different situations they can they'll shoot from the roof of their house not that that's training for hunting hopefully but in this situation yeah it's probably about 15 feet up a tree shooting an animal that's quartering towards me when it stopped to feed and its head was down i don't think it ever knew i was there but um when an animal is quartering towards you you don't need to be off too much in the horizontal plane to shoot too far behind it or in front of it because you're just not seeing the whole side of that animal so I was a little off with my shot, and um, <clears throat> and I I drove the arrow into its back leg. Not a good shot, but it hit an artery. So this thing is it's bleeding. We're going to be able to track it. And my dad had taught me well enough to know that when you aren't sure about your shot, you sit tight. You don't want to chase a wounded animal around the woods. You want it to do its thing and ideally die peacefully. And so um, I waited. Because they'll get a second flush of adrenaline if you chase yeah. after them, and they'll run real far away. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's part of what happened here. But anyway, my dad showed up, and uh, we started to follow that blood trail after about an hour. We kicked up that deer once, so that was exactly what we didn't want to do. Um, and I already had a sinking feeling in my gut. I mean, I knew I had injured an animal that was out there in the woods. And you really just, you would prefer for an animal just to drop dead in its in its tracks, you know, when you're hunting. But we continued, and uh, there was enough blood that we could follow it, and um, eventually we found it, and it wasn't quite dead, and we had to finish it off. And so here I am, 15 years old, and uh, I had to finish a deer off myself um, with my hands. And again, consequences for your actions, I mean... It was never more obvious that I did this. Now I need to fix this. And so I did. And uh, that, that'll stay with me for sure. And um, the only other thing I remember about that whole experience is on the way back, we saw a grouse sitting on a stump, one of these upland game birds in the woods. And my dad shattered all of my arrows missing that grouse. <laughs> and I don't think he felt bad about it at all. But um yeah, I'll always remember that one. Wow. And uh, for me, I one thing that stuck with me is that I don't actually feel like the hunt is over until I'm cooking the food. Mm-hmm. It's a real strange experience where it doesn't. there is all that responsibility and it doesn't feel totally done until you're around the dinner table. So were you guys cooking a lot of wild game oh, yeah. around I, the dinner table I, growing up? Totally. Um, I wouldn't say as kids we were super involved with the cooking process. But we were always aware of what we were eating, um, not least because we were on occasion chomping into lead shot in our, <laughs> our birds. Yeah, but, um, crunch, crunch, call, yeah. the, call the dentist. Yeah, um, it was a lot of venison, on occasion some moose meat. <laughs> moose hot dogs were big when we were real young. There's this funny story in the family that one of our family friends always brings up 
where um, my mom got a little agitated at us in the background during a phone call with him, and he could hear her turn away from the phone and go, boys, eat your moose hot dogs and shut up. <laughs> and so it was a lot of, a lot of game. Um, I learned that this is weird lately. I can bounce it off you. Is We had a lot of fish for breakfast growing up. Fish for breakfast? Huh. Yeah, I don't do a ton of fish for breakfast, but people in Hawaii do. Yeah, but sure. people in Hawaii love fish. Ho- people in Hawaii and Wisconsin, I guess. Yeah. What kind of fish? <laughs> bluegills. Yeah, these little pan fish that taste amazing when you fry them up in a pan. So uh, bluegill breakfast. Yeah. And how would you cook deer? Ooh, a lot of different ways. I mean, we ground quite a bit of the animals, so we did a lot of burgers and um, kind of like stroganoff style stuff. Um, and you have your own grinder. Had our own grinder, yep. Have an industrial-sized grinder oh, yeah. at this point that we inherited that dims the lights in the house when we turn it on. So it's nice to have that powerful <laughs> of a grinder. Cause, Whoa. Yeah. It's, it's like a hot tub. It's freaking serious, man. It's it's real. Yeah, you don't want to get a finger caught in there. And after you've used a little KitchenAid or, or one of those little grinders for a whole deer or six deers, if you've got three boys in the family and a dad that hunts, you're ready for a more powerful <laughs> grinder. I told you my story about getting a lem grinder and making wild boar burgers. A lem grinder is sick. It's like one of those, it's a big industrial sized grinder. Uh-huh. And I was making wild boar sausages with my brother who I'd just taken on his first wild boar hunt. Mm-hmm. And we had three pigs that we were processing and we brought my buddy Ty over who's a chef because we were like, he's going to be able to help us make the best sausages ever. Oh, yeah. And we went down to our local store and we got all the sausage casings. And, and there was like this look in the employees' eyes at the at the um, meat store where they were like, you guys know what you're doing? Like, And we're like, no, I haven't done it before. I'm like, yeah, we got it. Woo, we're stuck. And they're like, hey, call us if you need help or anything. All right. Oh, and we're cool like, of them. Yeah, super cool. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Staff of Life in Santa Cruz. And they were like, all right, yeah, good luck. And I thought that it was going to be like an afternoon ordeal. It took three days. <laughs> it, and, and we were using – we were like – had the bright idea to do cheese. So th- at a certain point, it all coagulated in the yeah. grinder. And it was like – I was like drop, dropping to my knees sobbing by the end of the whole thing. I was like, we, we bit off way more than we can chew here. This isn't good. But um, we ended up just doing burgers. It's way, way easier than sausages. Yeah, that resonates with me. I, meat processing is important. I think it's good to break down your own animal, but making your own sausage is <laughs> it's time consuming. And then you go to the store and there's like, here's a pack of sausages for $3. Yeah, so I see why. Wow. I see why you guys do this. If I was paid to make these sausages, I'd be making 25 cents an hour. Right. Yeah, it takes a long time. We have come into the practice of often making sausage patties. Ooh. It's a good way to get that sausage flavor. You're not going to get the snap of a sausage, but um, it's quicker. Right. And how do you, what what ingredients are your favorite? What's just like a, a best mm. of? To be honest, we use the pre-made uh, sausage mix. I don't even, mm. I couldn't tell you all the ingredients. Okay. We'll check it out. Yeah. It works. I'm sure there's some MSG in there. Yeah. <laughs> so you were in, you, you, um, you grew up in Wisconsin. You then moved to Melbourne to uh to to do biology yeah. and citizen science melbourne yeah. melbourne <laughs> and then did you move from there to colorado or or alaska 
Uh, a few stops in between. Okay. Um, Australians love to travel, and they turned me on to that. For sure. I had a couple of great Australian friends that um, had lots of stories from Southeast Asia, as many of them do. So first did a couple months backpacking around Southeast Asia. Um, man, was that an experience. I mean, for a guy from the Midwest who had hardly ever been out of a, a really a white culture, yeah, it was just eye-opening and awesome. I mean, it really inspired a lifetime of travel for me. And then uh, from there, I actually moved home and, and continued to bartend. I had been bartending in school at a Hilton hotel, um, which was a trip for sure. And you sort of feel like a counselor a little bit <laughs> behind the bar mixing up drinks. But it was a really fun and interesting experience to talk to people at the end of the day who were just there to unwind. But I also bartended at a beer garden. Hmm. at a local brewery and that job was just fun i bet period i mean it was just made a lot of cool friends had a lot of fun nights it was a concert venue too that was just one of the best jobs i've had were you doing biology during those jobs yes i had a couple jobs through most of uh university mostly working one at this national wildlife health center that i mentioned and before that, I worked over two years at a zoology, well, the zebrafish lab that we started out talking about. And that was in um, zoology research building on campus. And they were researching um, neurodevelopment and I actually uh, presented a research project that I eventually um, worked on there. What was it? The project? Yeah. Um, I was looking at how specific cells migrate around the body early in development um, mechanisms, including molecules like cadherins, they're called. And so you can do things like block the functioning of these cadherins and, um, see if the cells still migrate or not around the body. And the thought was, we're not just looking because we're interested at how zebrafish cells migrate around zebrafish bodies as they develop. But if we can figure out how cells migrate around the body, potentially there's room in there for cancer, um, research you know cancer also migrates around the body obviously so if you can look at find out and elucidate the mechanisms of cells moving around the body then potentially you could find a way to block that migration wow and you submitted that paper no i presented at a poster session i we never published that bit of research but um shout out to the halloran lab on the madison campus i was there for a couple of years and they were really supportive i worked my way up from fish feeder all the way to bona fide undergrad researcher you are um, very interested in science, and you're also very interested in the, the outdoors. Like I, fi I find it very interesting how deliberate you've been to in in the decisions to be able to combine both of those worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I certainly value science. I think that was something that was put into me early. Um, Science-based decisions, I feel, are the most sound decisions in conservation. And yeah, I mean, I have a, a science education, so I think once you realize the power of the scientific process, there's not much room for any other school of, not school of thought, but um, it's just really a way to frame your whole way of approaching a problem. And so, yeah, that's just what I go to when I, when I approach a problem. How so? Like, dig dig more into this. That, um as far as like framing and those questions that you'll ask yourself sure. and this and the scientific method. Yeah. Um, 
it's somewhat intuitive to me at this point and natural. So it might be hard to put into words, but you know, you, you build your knowledge off of things that you know to be true from past research. Um, that helps you build a rationale for a hypothesis and then you test that hypothesis. So, um, we've been fly fishing. That's a great place to test the scientific approach. Um, today I think these fish might be eating grasshoppers. There's your hypothesis. I'm going to test that hypothesis. Now I'm going to tie a, maybe a chubby Chernobyl pattern on, (laughs) chuck it out there. And that looks like a grasshopper. I'm going to see if they bite that. So that's one way to, way to test your theory that they're after grasshoppers today. Um, and you find that you can use that, that approach to problems in so many different areas of life after you've really internalized it. Um, not sure if I answered your question. No, it is. There. It's really, it's, I, I like that. That's great. Um, I think that there's, yeah, there's a real beauty to that, to looking at the lens, to, to looking at the world through that lens. A lot of people that do end up in labs and study the natural world, but don't really participate in it deeply. So that's the other side Mm -hmm. that I see in you is that you also have made a concerted effort to have every job be participatory as well. You know, going, yeah, working, being a bear guide in Alaska, for example. Sure. Yeah. And that was the next step after those bartending jobs, getting back to the timeline. Yeah. Um, growing up with the recreation I had hunting and fishing, I mean, to be able to combine my interest in science and then my love for spending time in the outdoors. I mean, it's just a, it's a no brainer. It's just how I like to go about life. So yeah. Uh, the, the next stop on the road was this, um, bear guiding gig up in Alaska. Um, I was a six month seasonal working as a naturalist bear guide. They needed zip line guides as well. So I actually cross trained as a zip line guide. So I was pointing out bears to cruise tourists in a while they were on zip lines. Yeah. Well, at, at times, yes, really yeah, totally. Yeah. You were actually zip lining right over the top of this this creek where the bears like to hang out and pull out salmon. So, um, you would be zipping right over bears. And it's funny. They don't seem to care too much about <laughs> zip liners overhead. Cause if you think about it, I mean, a bear doesn't have much cause to worry about what's above it. Neither does a deer, hence a tree stand. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, definitely. And especially if I'm up there with a bow, they don't have much to worry about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that expert level bow hunting while ziplining. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I, once I graduated to a compound bow, I was like, yeah, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a lot, a lot of respect for the guys that shoot recurves still. And including my dad, he, oh, he, um, he once shot a large, large black bear, killed it on the spot with a recurve bow, which is no small feat. And not only that, but the guy he was with in a tree stand was a little nervous because he did he did not have a sidearm a side arm on him at all. So if the bear had decided that he didn't like that arrow stuck in his side and it wasn't a good shot, it would have been a, a bad look. Do a lot of hunters in Wisconsin carry a sidearm on them? I think it depends what you're hunting. And was he, he was in Wisconsin hunting black bear? He was in Wisconsin hunting black bear from a tree stand. And it's not like that tree stand is going to save you from a black bear that's real pissed off. I mean, of course, they can, they're designed to climb trees. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think people who are bear hunting from a tree stand will very often be carrying a sidearm. But I, if you're hunting white-tailed deer, I, no, I don't know anybody who does. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I know someone who carries a sidearm on him while hunting uh, because he he was once hunting in a tree stand and um, was hunting black blacktail deer and saw one and saw a mountain lion creep up on it. Whoa. So, and watching this cat move, he said, was magical. Oh, he yeah. He said it was silent and perfect. Yeah. And then at about five yards, the... Um, mountain lion leapt and just um, killed the killed the deer instantly, and he was just sta- sitting in the tree stand, watched the whole thing. Whoa! Yeah, <laughs> wow. <Wild laughs> to, to see, oh god, that is the epitome yeah. of a tree stand tree stand TV, man. Yeah, God, yeah. I, I mean, but it freaked him out a little bit. Oh, and hunting. He's like, dude, yeah. This, if a fucking mountain lion <laughs> wants you, it's gonna take you down. I think about that frequently living in a in a canyony spot and I've seen mountain lions on three occasions out here and man they are they're special animals and like you described um they don't move like anything else. Usually when you see a mountain you're like that's a mountain lion. Yeah. You're not you're not at all like what was that moving in the bushes? You're like holy yeah that's a That's a lion. Yeah. There's a, a you know 100 pound house cat over there <laughs> and they move just like it. Yeah. Usually the first thing you see that you're like, that's a lion, is the tail. There's nothing else with a low cat tail like that. Wow. All right. Well, you need to finish your dad's bear story. Sorry. Yeah, we're getting off No, track. it's good. But then we... Uh, we I think that pretty much about. wrapped it up. But okay. I, we're all very proud of him for that hunt. It's just such a badass move. And I, I have mixed feelings about bear hunting, frankly, having both been a part of black bear hunts and guided naturalist black bear tours in alaska i mean you can get very close to them and they can seem um like zoo animals in that setting and it's easy to um you know anthropomorphize when you're standing next to a black bear that's eating salmon and then you go back to the bunkhouse and you go eat salmon <laughs> so what yeah. was uh guiding bear tours in alaska like um just bring me into that world okay yeah and I want to hear about bear uh, behavior, too. Totally. I can feel you, and you're talking to the right guy. Um, bear naturalist guiding in Alaska. Um, you get a little cynical, but it's it's balanced out by the number of just like, whoa, special, crazy, wild, nature is metal experiences out there. I mean, to see bears fighting in the wild is just like, I cannot believe this is happening all the time. Well, I could be sitting in an office right now, but there's a bit of repetition in it. I was working in Ketchikan, Alaska, and um, when the cruise ships pull into town, they're the largest building in town. I mean, they throw it. They cast a shadow over the whole city and thousands of tourists offload off these boats. And I've been a cruise tourist, so I don't hold it against people for wanting to experience these places, but it's a weird thing to behold. And so the town, the population of the town, like triples quadruples during the day when these cruise ships are in town and many people are there to check out what alaska is all about which is all majestic creatures you imagine black bears you know brown bears salmon bald eagles orcas we would see harbor seals it was just a really special place so i, I can't blame people for was this in to the summer a- too this was in the summer yeah i am not a full-fledged alaskan i have a lot of respect for the people that spend 12 months a year up in alaska this was april to october in a place where it rains 160 inches a year. So it's it's a wet spot 
it's a rainforest and these tourists jump on a bus come out to the spot this was herring cove and the, the outfit i was working for was called the alaska rainforest sanctuary um shout out to those guys and yeah then you, then you set out on your one to two hour tour around the woods and i mean excuse me everybody's just there they'd really just like to see a bear and for one it was a really learn it was a, i learned a lot it's a learned experience yeah i became a, a learned a learned. A, a learned guide in the woods and uh yeah you had to read your audience because some people are like i just want to see a bear and get back to the bar and drink and talk about it which is cool i mean that's a good day but <laughs> Some people are like, you can point out the little plants that you're walking around and be like, hey, guess what? You can eat this deer's heart stuff. You can make a salad out of this. And also, other animals eat it. And people are engaged in that kind of thing. There's a plant called deer's heart. There is. Okay. Yeah. I don't, that's a common name. I don't know the <laughs> specifically uh, the scientific name. But anyway. It, people do, and people get into it, I would imagine. I'd be psyched. Oh, that. yeah. Oh, yeah. Some people do, for sure. I think you tend to, uh, Again, read your crowd and see what people are interested in and talk about and present what they're interested in. And people just engage with different things in the woods. Um, and everybody loves to see a bear, of course, including me. And so that was always the highlight of the trip when people would see a bear. And that happens more regularly during certain times of the season when the right run of salmon is in, which comes in waves. I mean, first you'll have your chum salmon. And in that area, at least they came first. Or was it the king salmon? Anyway, you've got different runs of salmon coming in. And when the salmon are in, the bears are there. So it's incredibly predictable. So most of these tours are seeing black bears, which is such a cool experience. But man, you have to really exercise your public speaking chops when you've got 20 people that have just paid a bunch of money to see a black bear. And you're standing around in the woods with them. And they're like, where's the bear, man? What are we doing here? And you're cracking dad jokes about... <laughs> What do, you, what do you call a bear flying through the air? A bear plane. And they're all just staring daggers at you. How long are these tours? An hour to two hours, generally. Okay. Um, so you just take them into the woods? What, or what's this whole situation yeah, look like? It was a little more set up than that. We we had a trail that you would pretty much walk a pretty circuitous route. Um, and that's part of the thing that grinds on you. is, And part of the reason you get cynical is because you, you just... Um, you see the short-sightedness of people that are like, I'm just out here to see a bear. And you're like, there's so much cool stuff out here. <laughs> look at all these mushrooms, man. Look at all these plants. And look at the salmon and the eagles and everything else. This tree is, you know, hundreds of years old. Pay attention. But, um, yeah, we would walk a pretty regular route. And we had radios so we could tell each other when there was a bear in a certain area and then get a group over there. So we could, we could really tailor give people the best chance that they would have in Alaska to see a bear by coordinating. We even at times we had people just out specifically not guiding tours, but looking for bears to get tours out to see bears. Um, so that's kind of what the tour looks like. You're walking a trail in the woods, pointing things out and waiting for a bear to appear essentially. And so Alaska, like some places like where we are now, it brings the nature. I mean, you can just stand in the woods and stuff's going to happen. It's just a wild place. Wow. And do, and then how far away do you need to stay from the bear? What's the what are, and what are like the ethics around yeah. the whole tour? How do oh, other man. people feel about it? What's how do you feel about it? I mean, I wish we were 
I, I remember at the time thinking, I wish we were giving more back to this environment. Not that ecotourism is taking a lot from the environment, but it has its its impacts. Um, you know, in places like Ketchikan and other parts of Alaska, with all the cruise ships c- cruising around, there's a lot of emissions and pollution in the air. And there are certain types of lichen, for example, that can only grow in incredibly clean, clear air. And they're seeing those lichen populations recede up the mountains away from town because of the amount of pollution from this tourism. So the tourism has an impact on the environment, even though it seems like you're just out watching a bear and then you jump on your bus and leave. I didn't affect that place, but you really do. And so I, I remember wishing at the time, I wish we were giving more back to this habitat um, instead of just inspiring people to care about it, hmm. which is great. But that's kind of how I ended up in this line of work now where I'm physically doing things right. to conserve landscapes. But um, And what are the dangers of black bears? Yeah, and you asked about the distance you should stand from one. I mean, the dangers, of course, are that they can be aggressive. Um, most often, if you scare one for some reason or if you approach a, a mama bear with her cubs um, or get too close and it's trying to defend its food or something, so there are dangers inherent to being around big, wild, strong animals, and black bears are just that. Even the smaller bears are big, strong, dangerous animals. Um, so you got to keep your distance. And I don't remember what guidelines we were following at the time. And uh, funny story. I'm not sure I should share this, but I will. Um, our bear deterrent at the time we were using, each guide would carry around a marine flare. Um, you know, which is like a, basically like a road flare that you would set on the road if you were in a car accident or something in the dark and you want people to know sure. where you were, but these were resistant to rain and water, which was important because again, we were in the rainforest, but when we, um, stood around in a circle at the end of the season, all the guides as our last hurrah and tried to light off our Marine flares to see which would work. I would say about half of them worked. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all, but that said, you know, I was out there for six months. I was only one person ever used a flare. When the salmon are in, the bears are so fixated on that food and accumulating those resources to get through the winter and building up their body fat. I mean, they could care less that there's a group of tourists looking down on them from a boardwalk above. It, it's they're just fixated. Yeah, how, on much what's are, how much salmon are they eating every day? Do you know? Ooh, that's a good question, and I do not know the answer. But they're, how long do bears hibernate for? It Black bears. depends what part of the world they're in um, or what part of the North America they're in. Um, in Ketchikan. In Ketchikan, ooh, I'm going to dig in the memory bank. I would say up there it was somewhere between seven, probably around six, seven months. That it, they would hibernate. Yeah. It's, wow. a, it's a significant portion of the year. And did they just year. stay asleep basically the entire time? Yeah. It's a, hibernation is kind of a confusing thing to think about because it, not all animals that we think hibernate are really true hibernators. There's this thing called a torpor state. Um, bears are essentially really, really groggy. They're not really dead, fast, unconscious asleep. Excuse me. Um, and so if you go po- poke a bear when it's hibernating, it'll wake up. It's not like it's dead to the world for six months and then wakes up six months later like what year is it um (laughs) so you can in really bold researchers will pull bears out of hibernation dens in order to do some science and figure out bear population in an area or other other interesting research projects they all sleep in caves 
No. Bears can sleep right out on the surface of the forest floor. And sometimes, especially in Alaska, there's a lot of, and it's real jungly, it's a rainforest, there's a lot of these spaces around the roots of these gigantic trees, and they can kind of tuck themselves underneath those tree roots. And that's fine. And it doesn't get that cold in Ketchikan, Alaska over the winter, so they're just fine. And all this to say that bears are incredibly adaptable. I mean, there are parts of the country where they they don't hibernate at all. They just don't need to. There's food available through the year. And so... Yeah, I mean, they they could hibernate anywhere from, I mean, maybe at the northern extent of their range, I don't know, eight months a year, maybe more. And then at the southern extent of their range, they don't need to hibernate at all. Wow. Yeah, and that's that's just getting started. I mean, I don't know how long you want to talk about yeah, black yeah. bears. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, I mean, another... Dude, I saw Wild America when I was a kid. <laughs> you ever see that movie about the three brothers? Dude, oh, you're yeah. Wild America. Yeah. Holy shit, it's three brothers that go in search <laughs> for bears. It makes sense. Yeah, and maybe why I love that Steppenwolf song so much, Born to be Wild. Dude, but... you ever see that movie, right? You, you've oh, seen yeah. it, right? It's oh, yeah. It's a fucking amazing movie. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, what's yeah. the kid's name? Disney Marshall? Channel? Yeah. Marshall? God, you, everyone should go watch Wild America. It's a movie about three brothers that want to make a film about all the wildlife across America, and it concludes with them seeking out this bear cave. Yeah, that's it. And then go look for a bear cave is what you should do. It's a true story, right? It's a documentary, I thought. Well, Wild America <laughs> it is – maybe there was a documentary and then maybe and a movie made about it. I don't know. But there's a movie that it's, that's acted out of the three brothers going and doing this. Really? Yeah. I mean, seems plausible. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So Where were we? We're in Alaska, aren't we? We're in Alaska. We're back in Alaska. We're back in the rainforest of Alaska watching bears. Oh, bears. Fucking sick movie, though. Delay. Oh, man. I'm so going to watch good. it when yeah, we're I done seen here. That thing, so I was like 12. Yeah. Um, delayed implantation is something bears do that when I learned about it, if you're not fascinated by the natural world, you're just not paying attention. Delayed implantation. So these bears, once their eggs are fertilized, the eggs will implant themselves in the uterine wall. Or hold on, maybe I'm getting this a little backwards. But anyway, the concept of delayed implantation is that they will they'll have fertilized eggs in their in their reproductive system. And then depending on how much fat that female is able to put on, that's how many eggs will actually implant in her uterine wall and grow to be cubs. So if she has a really great year, puts on a lot of fat, her body kind of knows that she can support more cubs with all that body weight. So she'll have more offspring that year. So it's a real lean year, doesn't put on that much weight for some reason. Maybe the salmon runs bad. Not as many eggs are going to implant. And so these eggs delay their implantation so that it's, it's sort of a check measure to make sure that, that female can support as many cubs as she's going to have out there while she's hibernating. Whoa. And that's the other crazy thing. They have the cubs in the den while they're hibernating. Whoa. Yeah. Wild. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So, so how do you feel about hunting bears now? <sighs> Mixed. And I think that's partly what draws me to hunting is I, I'm, I'm out there to figure it out. I'm drawn to it. And I'm not always pro everything, but I'm not against it either. And, um, you know, I think personally, I would be much more likely to hunt and harvest a large, um, probably male, mature, older bear. Just not that interested in hunting a a middle-aged bear. 
Um, I think it's probably something I'll do someday, but I'm going to need to think a lot about it and make sure that, um, it's right. You know, I don't, I don't take it lightly to walk into the woods and take an animal's life and, um, not a bear, (laughs) you know? So jury's out. And how are their populations? Black bears are doing great. Yeah. Black bears are doing just fine. They're not on any kind of list. And were they previously or at at some point? You know, at times, the hunt didn't used to be regulated for black bears if you go back far enough. And they were seen as a predator. And, of course, people would run into them and have problems. So they they would decrease the populations by killing bears. Now that we're regulating and restricting the harvesting of bears... The bears are incredibly adaptable, as I mentioned. Their populations are expanding rapidly. I mean, they can people see bears in cities, right? They can move right through, and they can live off your garbage. Or they can live out there in the wilds of Alaska. And they can produce a lot of offspring. So bear populations are doing just fine. We, from, a, from a population standpoint, we don't need to be worried about right. bears at all. And I think that's part of what makes me feel more sound about the decision to hunt a bear someday. You know, let's talk about the state of conservation. Sure. And let's start with the Pittman-Robertson Act. Yeah. Okay. Deal. Yeah. So, sportsmen. Uh, and before you get going, I'm just going to tee you up with at any point we can talk, start talking about the Nature Conservancy within the larger context of hunting and conservation. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about these different models that are happening right now. Okay. It's a, yeah, it's a great conversation, a good thing for people to be aware of that aren't. Um, and it kind of feeds in well to our little timeline here because after Alaska, I found myself working for the Nature Conservancy, who I work for now. Um, but as far as Pittman-Robertson, I mean, just the, the brief version is that sportsman goods, um, everything from bullets to camouflage, I believe camouflage is included here, um, there's a tax, an extra tax that was self-imposed when this law went into place. It was sportsmen that pushed this tax law through. And all that tax money that's put on these sportsman goods goes to conservation projects. So sportsmen are funding conservation every time they buy goods for their sport. And what does conservation look like? Ooh, I mean, looks like so many things. Um, Where does that money go? Oh, oh, oh. Um, Often to land protection, but possibly research, too. Um, You know, supporting wildlife biologists. But, excuse me. But land protection is really the most important thing. I mean, you can really draw a lot of declining wildlife populations back to declining habitat. It's the most important thing we can do, whether it's climate change that's affecting that decline habitat or... Um, the expansion of urban areas into habitat or the loss of water out of a habitat. You know, all of those factors are causing the decline of wildlife populations. So you can support wildlife by supporting and protecting habitat and even improving habitat. Are there any population um, success stories that you think are really great stories for people to know about of animals that were on the decline and then through some kind of um, intelligent model put in place, we're able to rebound? Yeah, um, of course there are. And I don't, I'm not familiar enough with any specific examples to give you numbers, but 
one that's pointed too often is, and this isn't, well, it's a huge win, um, but it's not necessarily related to Pittman Roberts Act. Um, Bald eagles is a great example. I mean, there's a pesticide used back in the day called DDT. It affected their reproduction and that it made eggshells real soft. You're nodding your head. You've probably heard of this before. Yeah. Um, Ospreys were affected to a lot of birds of prey. Silent Spring. Yes. Rachel Carson. Exactly. Um, And anyway, when we find... Silent Spring was a a book that came out in, I believe, 1963, exposing DDT and the... um, and the bald eagle as well as condor populations right and how there was at one point i i'm making this number up but it was around it it was like 18 uh, california condors left in existence yeah right and and her book spurred an environmental movement that then a few years later led to the first Earth Day, which mm-hmm. led to the Endangered Species Act, mm-hmm. Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, banning of DDT, and the rebounding of uh, of that bird. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth, I think it helps to visualize the problem by thinking about just the title of that book, Silent Spring. I mean, Rachel Carson was writing about how it was quiet where it shouldn't be, where there had been birds calling and maybe insects chirping too. Um I think that kind of soundscape ecology is fascinating. You can really learn a lot about a place just by listening. And anyway, um, once they banned that substance, DDT, I mean, since then, these birds of prey have been making a huge comeback. So it's an example of a success story. There are many, many others, but that's a great one. Well, you just say the soundscape. I love that word. Yeah. I've been thinking about the story that you told me the other day of the uh, frogs. Oh, yeah. Tell me the story. Sure. Okay. Um, this wasn't research I was a part of. It was something I heard about and I think about every time I hear frogs now. And essentially, um, there's this guy out there. I think his name is Bernie Krause. And he's famous for recording these natural soundscapes after a long professional life in, in music. And anyway, um, this research was showing that there was this wetland near an airport. And when, if you listen to frog populations out there in the wild, as I'm sure you do, um, they kind of have this uh, synchronous thing where they all kind of hum and os- that sound sort of oscillates all at the same time. They're in sync. And when planes flew over this particular wetland, they were recording the sound. They found that these, these frogs could no longer sync up. They sort of threw them out of whack, and for a while they were all individually making their calls. And one thing that that in-sync calling does is it throws off predators. They can't really identify by listening where a specific frog is, where their prey is. But when they're all thrown out of whack like that, when an airplane flies over, all of a sudden you can hear the individuals. These frogs are no longer in sync and you can pick out a single frog because of the way it's calling on its own. And so they actually saw that frog population diminish and decrease because all of a sudden predators are really able to take advantage of that, <laughs> that prey population. Um, so, you know, one more example of a way that we're affecting landscapes, whether or not we know it, the plane you're flying over a wetland in could be affecting those frogs. That is a fucking story. Yeah. <laughs> I love that so it's, much. It's a trip. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there is... Hunting and the money used from it um, being uh, being moved towards conservation is really exciting to me. 
I come from a beach world where there are coastal environmental issues and there are really effective organizations working against, you know, working for conservation on the coast. Um, I also see a big portion of the environmental world that is um, not very strategic and they try and fight these systems that are destroying wildlife that have all the incentives to destroy wildlife, right? So they, and it's not that these are just bad sociopathic people. It's that they have so many incentives moving towards development, moving towards, you know, destroying an ecosystem. These are financial Mm -hmm. incentives. And if you're a publicly traded corporation, you actually have a, a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders to make them as much money as possible yeah. every single quarter. Yeah, so point. it's not even your choice to you know destroy this area. Mm-hmm. Like if you're Exxon Mobil and you want to start drilling in the Arctic, you're going to get some lobbyists to get a candidate elected and they're going to sign off on you being able to drill there mm-hmm. because you have so many incentives moving in that direction. Yeah. And, and the thing that's so exciting to me about hunting and, and that money being used for conservation is it, is it tilts the game to have the incentive be in your favor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I am a, a major fan of systems that can tilt the game in their favor so that you can get the not-so-thoughtful, not-so-smart dude to make the right decision without really thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm not such a cynic. I'm going to say the system's broken. Everything's broken. We need to just burn it down and start over. But I do think that we could incentivize better for these to make these decisions in favor of conservation happen. And I think the other thing hunting does is um, it just reinforces the connection to nature. I mean, I mentioned it the other day, and we both acknowledged that this was a pie-in-the-sky idea. But I think if if anybody who's ever going to make a decision about a landscape had to go backpack in that landscape for two or three days or just visit it for a day, I mean, they're going to make wildly different different decisions about whatever they're making decisions about that affect that landscape. So I think there should be that kind of accountability. Yeah. I think it's a form of accountability for politicians to actually see the places that they are going to impact. That yeah. is not out of the question. No. Like that's that's like saying like if you want to if you want to go to war you should have some understanding of of war historically and what it has done to various nations mm-hmm. like, and and yeah I I think that accountability and that kind of regulation would do a huge amount yeah yeah and it kind of starts to get us into this idea that. You know, humans play a part in the environment. We're inextricable at this point. I mean, it's it's a grand idea to think that we could just step out of any place and it's going to get better. But for one, I mean, the predators aren't there anymore um, to manage prey species. But two, we need to associate ourselves with nature a little more. If we start just blocking off areas and telling people that they can't go there, then people are going to dissociate from nature further and we're going to lose that connection even more. And how can you ever expect somebody to make the right decisions if they don't see the impacts and they don't, they can't even picture the place. So I think one of the biggest threats to nature is the continued dissociation from nature. It's a great point. Yeah. And 
that leads us right into the work that you're doing sure, right now. Yeah. Yeah. What a segue. Um, yeah. So, uh, after working in Alaska, um, I started working with an organization called the nature conservancy, huge organization, actually, um, some would say the largest nonprofit environmental organization in the world. We work in over 72 countries. We have over 4,000 employees, over 400 of which are scientists. So it's a science-based organization. Um, and I started as, and continue to be, um, a land steward and preserve manager. And my first gig was in California. I was working at, at a place called the McLeod River Preserve. Nice. It was. I was yeah. gorgeous. And uh, what was the spot? It was uh, a drainage off of Mount Shasta, um, the McLeod River. It was pretty dang remote. Uh, you bumped down a Forest Service road, incredibly steep, into a canyon about 45 minutes from the nearest gas pump. And um, for me, once I was down there, I would stay for a week at a time before coming back out to do <laughs> uh, groceries and laundry and all that. But the work itself was um, taking care of the landscape by um, stewarding the property. I mean, this this is everything from weed management to trail maintenance to um, supporting biological research projects that were happening on site to um, greeting and, and hosting visitors on site. This place was open to the public, so I was having both donors to the Nature Conservancy visit and members of the public that wanted to fish. This place was also all about fly fishing. Um, so I wore a lot of hats on that job and it was a great exposure to the organization in such a special place. I'm going to pull back a little bit to what the nature conservancy actually does. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, that's a great point let me get carried away. Yeah. Just talking about the, yeah. the wild and awesome places we protect. Um, I always like to think about the mission statement first, because that's what we go back to when we think about what we do. Um, so the mission statement of the organization is to conserve the lands and waters on which all life depends. That's a pretty broad statement, but that is what we set out to do. Um, we do that through so many modalities. Uh, I, I won't even be able to mention them all. I can speak specifically about what I do and mention briefly the other things that happen in the organization. Um, I work in asset management and land protection. And so I help protect and manage the places that we own or have some hand in. And then I, I promote the conservation projects in surrounding landscapes and work with neighboring landowners to support conservation values on their land. Um, that involves everything from sustainable grazing models and prescribed burns to fixing fences or making sure the facilities are running correctly and hosting visitation. I mean, we talked about um, exposing uh, urban populations to natural places. That's I still do a little bit of that up here. I get students to come out and help me dig trail and, and point out all the cool things happening around us while we do it. So um, it's a pretty holistic job, and, and it really supports the, the wider conservation in the area. How much land conservation is done by working with ranchers? A lot. Um, yeah, I mean, we are on a historic the landscape we're on right now is historically ranching property, um, at least since Europeans have arrived. And, you know, there's this movement, cows, not condos. And so if you can keep large pieces of land intact, that is much more preferable from a conservation standpoint than having smaller subdivided properties, just because you start to deal with landowners um, 
more landowners who might build more fences and manage all of their invasive weed populations differently. And, you know, beyond that, just all of the effects of constructing buildings on a property. I mean, and beyond that, I mean, the whole sustainable grazing concept, we used to have bison roaming around in this country, huge herds. I mean, unimaginable, absolutely unimaginable. And they provided a real, um, they provided a real service to the environment. And so cattle have in some ways supplanted that service. Um, it's not perfect, but it's really part of the natural regime of this ecosystem for it to have large grazing animals moving through and selecting certain grass species. Tell me about the whole interaction that happens. If a, a, a herd of bison mm. are moving across a landscape, yeah. what is that doing to the ecosystem? They're cycling nutrients to the ecosystem for one. Um, so they're eating that grass, digesting it and pooping it back out. Um, that really provides a nutrient cycle that's needed out there in the environment. And they're compacting the soil a little bit, which isn't totally unnatural for something like that to happen. Um, so, so bison are providing a number of services like those two examples out on the landscape. And then what happens after that? Like, uh, do then seeds, or is it easier for seeds to grow? Do more animals like birds come down to get those seeds? Like what kind of cascade throughout the ecosystem happens as yeah. a result of bison roaming around? You know, we're getting out of my area of expertise okay. a little bit, so it's not exactly my, my line of work. I, I help to promote sustainable grazing by setting up grazing leases with neighboring landowners that have these conservation values in mind. Um, specifically, we don't want areas to be overgrazed by cattle um, because that will more closely mimic the effects that bison have on a landscape. Got it. So you're moving them around. Exactly. Right? Yep. So it doesn't just totally till up the right. the landscape and then nothing can grow there. Exactly. Right? So yeah. how, so how how do you move how do how does a rancher move cattle around a property? Yeah, I mean I am not a rancher, but I've taken part in this stuff. Um nowadays there's more ATVs and four-wheelers than excuse me than um Horses, <laughs> cowboys out there moving cattle around, but you still have plenty of cowboys in this country moving cattle. And um, the neighboring property, for example, huge, huge property, 4,000 acres. It's divided um, by fencing fence lines that we help to maintain, um, the ones on our property anyway. To keep cattle in certain areas at certain times, then you move cattle by herding them into a different piece, pasture, for a certain amount of time, and then you move them to a different fenced-off piece of pasture. Um, and that's, So that's kind of the mode of action that you use to, to move these animals around the landscape. Fencing takes a lot of work to maintain, and uh, fences are barriers to wildlife. So, you know, it's a, it's a nuanced aspect of conservation. And you can find a solution there in this example uh, and the solution is wildlife-friendly fencing. And then we also go out and remove remnant fencing is another project I try to do out here on this landscape. What is wildlife-friendly fencing? Yeah, um, it's fencing that is easier for wildlife to move over or under. Um, so often wildlife-friendly fencing, and there's different regulations and guidelines in different areas depending what species you have out there. But we have lots of uh, pronghorn antelope out here, for example. Pronghorn antelope are great at running really, really fast. They're not great at jumping. In fact, I have seen many um, run right up to a fence line and stop, confused, not sure how to get around it. 
but they like to go under fences when they can. So one thing you can do to promote wildlife-friendly fence is to have a non-barbed strand of fence as your bottom wire on the fence line and have that high enough, I think about 18 inches off the ground is what we go for, so that that antelope can scoot under the fence and when they have the opportunity and the fence is set up in a friendly way like this, you'll see them do it. They run and run and run and barely slow down and just like slide right under the fence. So you can set up fences so that animals can still move through a landscape easily um, just by changing the type of fence that you use. That's amazing. And do you just go out and talk to a rancher and mm-hmm. say, hey, would you be willing to put this in? Or we can provide you various incentives if you do. Yeah. What do those conversations look like? You know, it's it's uh, it's all part of a big conversation that we have. Some people are more amenable to those types of changes. As you can imagine, changing a whole fence line over from a five-stranded barbed wire fence to a three-stranded top and bottom unbarbed fence is it's arduous. It's expensive. It's going to take a lot of time and money. So... Yeah, we provide incentives. You're exactly right. And one tool in our toolkit to sort of um, promote certain conservation practices is a conservation easement. And that's one other very large part of my work up here in this landscape that we use to um, conserve the values, ecological values of a place. Got it. Um, and d- tell me more about a, a conservation easement. Sure. Yeah. It's a, I like the stick metaphor that you told me. <laughs> it's a novel concept to a lot of people. And it was to me, um, before a few years ago. Um, yeah, I like the stick metaphor too. It's helped me. So you can think of a property when you purchase it as being a bundle of sticks and that each one of those sticks represents a right associated with that property, be it uh, mineral extraction, forest, uh, sorry, timber harvesting, uh, water rights, for example, development rights, road construction rights, so many different rights you have as a landowner. And a conservation easement is a voluntary agreement between a landowner and a land trust organization or governmental agency, which by with a, a certain number of those sticks, certain number of those rights are sold to or acquired by the land trust, the third party group, not the landowner. So they're all, they're pretty nuanced, pretty complicated agreements. They're usually written specifically with a piece of um, land in mind. So there's not a one size fits all for a conservation easement. And usually what we're trying to do, or really always what we're trying to do is protect the conservation values of a landscape. And often that does things like restricts development on a piece of land, restricts subdividing of that land, um, makes it so that we own the rights for mineral extraction so that you can no longer extract minerals. In on perpetuity. In perpetuity, exactly. Wow. Yeah. And so it's forever and ever. And forever ever. and ever, ideally. Yeah, I think in perpetuity in uh, legalese means 100 years, but I, forever and ever. Um, and that means even if that piece of property is sold to a new landowner, that development is still restricted. Hmm. So there are a variety of reasons a landowner might want to get involved in a conservation easement agreement. Um, but one strong one, I think, is a lot of these ranchers, a lot of people that own big pieces of property, they don't ever want to see that land developed. They don't want to look across this landscape someday if they're having to sell it and not working on it and see house after house and fence line after fence line and invasive weeds all over the place. And, um, that's not to say that will happen, but you know, we're dealing with rapid population expansion here on the front range and, um, it's possible. Right. And what, uh, around this property, 
are the cattle being used for dairy? Or These are beef cattle. Beef cattle. Yeah, this is beef cattle country. Okay. Uh-huh. And whereas Wisconsin is more <laughs> yeah. of dairy cattle country. I grew up in dairy cattle country. That's right. In fact, my mom worked for the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board, so I was, I was in the fold. Do uh, um, beef and dairy cattle ranches look a lot different? Yes, uh, at least in my experience. Um, I mean, oftentimes a cattle ranch looks like a big prairie, you know, in the places I've lived. And that's because these cattle are roaming around and feeding off the various grasses that grow seasonally in different places on that landscape. Um, Dairy cattle that I've seen are more often being raised on dairy farms that uh, there's less room to roam. Uh, they're usually fed food that's brought to them, uh, instead of roaming around. It's not always the case. There are plenty of dairy cattle that get out and graze in pastures, but, uh, it's more on that side of the spectrum. So you've got generally smaller farms, not these huge, great big ranch lands and, uh, the cows aren't roaming nearly as far. What are your feelings about ranch lands like this and eating cattle off of it versus the, you know, Cowschwitz uh, areas, you know, that, that people hear about, like these kinds of horror stories of cattle that are that can't go outside and that, you know, are just fed this crap food and pump full of antibiotics. Yeah. Do, you, do you have thoughts given your experience on going to these various kinds of ranches yeah i feel like that was a little bit of a loaded question yeah i'm sure it was <laughs> i'm pro cowschwitz i'm pro cowschwitz <laughs> um no you know uh, i think that, uh, the reason i ask is that i've i haven't been to one of these ranches right so sure. i only have this um view from of the problem from afar. And I think that that can be a problem sometimes. Yeah. Like I have an understanding of the amount of grain that is being grown Mm -hmm. to feed cattle and the amount of pesticides that are being used for the grain, which then like rushes off into rivers and the pollution that occurs from that. And Mm -hmm. I, I have an understanding of the amount of shit that is produced from certain, um, certain ranches uh-huh. that will then pollute surrounding uh, drinking water. Mm-hmm. Like I get those all in concept, but I haven't seen a lot of it um, up close and personal. So I may actually have some misunderstandings about yeah. it. It's hard for me to remove myself from the people I know who are engaged in all types of cattle practices. But, um, you know, maybe one way to explain it. One of the reasons I like to hunt is because that animal is out there living its life like it would if there were no people around and has one bad day. Well, ideally. (laughs) I haven't been to that animal its whole life. But, um, yeah, you know, there's this idea that it's living the way it should live, the way it's evolved to live out there on the landscape in a natural way and then has one bad final day. And beef cattle in many situations have a similar story. I don't think it's always one bad day. I think there's a real variety of different practices in the industry. Um, but yeah, I, of course I'm, I'm more interested in beef processes and cattle processes where the animal is out there kind of freely roaming, free to spend its time how it would like in, in a relatively natural environment. 
um, versus something that spends its whole life in a feedlot or in a concrete enclosure. Are there certain labels for cattle that you uh, are more likely to purchase? Like ones that is there something like a rotisonal grazing label? It's a good question. Again, we're getting a little bit out of my area of expertise, but um, I tend to look for you know grass finished beef. So something that one practice in in beef cattle is to at the very end of a cow's life bring it into a feedlot and feed it grain to really pack on that last bit of mass and get a bit of fat involved because that's the flavorful part, right? Or at least that's what we're led to think. And um, yeah, you know something that's grass finished, it just seems to be a more ethical way to bring that cattle to the end of its life. That means that it was eating grass its entire life, uh, basically. Yeah, I would think but so. But that's different than grass-fed because grass-fed means that just for part of its yeah. life it was eating grass, but part of it was, right. was grain. Usually uh, you'll hear people say, this beef is grass-fed, grass-finished. So usually those terms are used in tandem and usually – a cow that was grass like, like we killed him with grass <laughs> finished him off of the grass grass finished <laughs> yeah took him down finish him <laughs> i don't think that's quite what they mean <laughs> yeah um and dude i love this conversation i know that you've just ca- been carrying it and i've been like asking you one <laughs> no, question fine. after the next no you're exposing some gaps in my knowledge here and truthfully i'm speculating a little bit because um I know my work, but I guess I don't know the industry as well as I thought. And that's one thing I love about being out here. I mean, I learned so much spending time around these landowners that are out here and their livelihood is ranching. It's fascinating. And so many of them care so deeply about the, this landscape. You just need to stop and talk to them for five minutes to know. I mean, they know more about the way grass succession happens on their pastures than any biologist. Wow. Yeah. What do these conversations sound like? Do you have any examples? Oh, well, it might be like, uh, (laughs) I I don't know. Um, I don't want to say they're conflict driven, but everybody's very busy. So usually it'll be like, hey, did you uh, notice that the fence is down over there on that side of the ranch? And then it's like, uh, well, yeah, yeah, let's go out there and work on that together. And when you can work side by side with somebody, I mean, that's when you really get to know them. And that's when they know that you're out here on the landscape as well. I'm not just driving up here from the city in order to um, tell them what to do. Tell them what to do. So you're out working with them on fence line. Oh, yeah. I get involved as much as possible in little projects. And we bring them out onto our land to help, too, as they're able. Um, Ranchers, but also just homeowners in the area. I mean, we love our volunteers. Um, there's a lot of work to be done out here, so it's extremely helpful to have people involved. And, yeah, again, it's just that connection to nature. When you forge that next to somebody, it lends itself to saying, hey, we're fixing this fence. Why, wouldn't, why shouldn't we maybe replace it with a wildlife-friendly fence and just plant a seed? And they might not might not take right away. They're busy people, and they're trying to support their own livelihoods, but get them thinking. And again, if you're working alongside them, they're much more likely to take you seriously than if I'm just, you know, sending an email or calling them to be like, hey, change your fence. Go do this, yeah. Yeah. And does does your organization uh, take volunteers from all over the world? 
Well, we work all over the world. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. We engage with people all over the world. Um, my volunteers tend to come from more local areas just because it's easier to get here. Um, so right around Colorado, they'll come out uh-huh. and what, what are a variety of things that volunteers will help do? Yeah. Um, we may, like I said earlier, remove some remnant fence. So some of these fence lines and fence, um, that had been put up historically to keep cattle in the right places is no longer serving that purpose. Um, cattle are no longer grazed in that spot. And so you've got these old barbed wire fences falling down on the landscape and wildlife can get caught up in that fence or find that it can't uh, traverse the landscape as it should because that fence is still in the way. So one great thing you can do with um, volunteers, and I've done this many times, is go out and coil those that wire, the barbed wire up and take out the fence posts and the wire and pack it out. And it's hard work. Um, a lot of these fences are in pretty remote, ugly places to hike into. But, man, is it rewarding. I remember... Um, we had some interns out here last summer from Redlands University in California, and we did a remnant fence day and removed some fence line. And then I set a trail camera in that spot um, right where we removed that fence, and it wasn't a week before we had a mama bear and her cub and a mountain lion and deer moving right through that spot, whereas before they may have just had to walk right down that fence line, and now they can just walk right through. I mean, and to send those images to those Redlands University students and show them like, look, here's what our work did. There are animals who are, you know, maybe not feeling gratitude. I can't say that they're feeling gratitude, but, um, you know, able to live in a more wild and free way because of your action. So remnant fence removals, great. Um, Spend a lot of time working on our trail out here. It's important to maintain a trail for a variety of reasons. Um, One, it keeps traffic somewhat concentrated out there on the landscape which helps to uh, prevent erosion out there on our property. It also helps to um, prevent tracking of weed species around if you're staying on a trail. And it also helps us to get to certain areas more quickly and more efficiently so that we can, um, not only for emergency purposes, but also so that we can treat weeds in an area, for example, or get to those remnant fences. So trail maintenance is incredibly important. And then we have people who help us to treat those invasive weeds I keep mentioning too. So we'll go out and pull weeds with big groups of people. And that really helps to uh, support the, the um, plant biodiversity in the area. Man, getting out involved in your neighborhood, getting your hands dirty is what saves the world. Yeah, just these little local tasks. That's I mean, it, dude. Yeah. That is it. I mean, the, in an increasingly isolated world issues seem so distant mm-hmm. and so difficult to even begin to engage they're overwhelming and distant yeah but to figure out what is happening in your fucking neighborhood and get your hands dirty is such an empowering experience and dude i've been doing this work for a while and i think that tackling these big issues like where the funding goes and how elections are paid for and you know massive systemic issues like yeah we need people on that and we Mm -hmm. need to keep our our finger on that pulse as well but it shouldn't be both hands on that pulse Mm. because i think that we should keep one hand on the issues that are happening right here right now that we can get involved with 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 our hands 
or with a specific skill mm-hmm. that we have. It doesn't mean that you need to go out and cut fence, but yeah. to, but if you want to, you know, uh, help your local organization make a new website because you know how to code or Mm -hmm. hey oh i do motion graphics maybe i can help you with this aspect like everyone has a skill Mm -hmm. and the more locally that you get involved the more resilient your community becomes and then when there's a fucking global pandemic that happens you have something to fall back on Mm -hmm. because that's another thing that happens when you get out into um the wild with another group of people is you become friends with them. Yeah. The the rewards are many. Um, Not only are you out enjoying usually a pretty special place um, and learning about how special that place is, you're more connected with the people around you too. And building community is so important for any of this stuff to happen. Um, Beyond that, you're getting sun, you're getting dirty, which is great. I think Uh, it's just like, you've never felt better. And when you're walking back out of the canyon with a trail tool in your hand and four new friends behind you talking about the day (laughs) and that rattlesnake you saw and that mountain lion track and you feel good that you gave back a little bit. So I think, yeah, I mean, just, just do it. Just start, just do something small. You'll feel good about it. And it's really easy to get cynical. You're right. When you look at these huge problems and think you can't affect any change, but Man, if you can remove a fence line and prevent one animal from getting entangled or, you know, do some land protection or um, support a more healthy ecosystem so that that ecosystem can support two more herds of antelope out there. I mean, that's a win. That's pretty cool. That's not to be discounted. Yeah. So what brought you to Colorado? The job that I'm currently in, um, Colorado was definitely always on my radar. Um, Why? As a kid in the Midwest, it just seemed like there's a place where I can get some adventure in. Um, Not that I wasn't finding adventure in Wisconsin, but just to get up in the mountains, get into a more wild environment where there are big, big animals like elk and moose running around. Um, Yeah, I don't know. There's just some magical something about it i remember i did a fifth grade art project where i um i wrote a book about colorado (laughs) i drew the state flag and i knew the state flower and i drew mesa verde national park and uh i don't know i've just always been kind of in so it feels right to be here now but my job is truly my dream job and it may be other people's dream job too um but yeah, maybe just to color in the blanks here, um, after working for the Nature Conservancy in California, um, I went down to Texas. It was a six-month seasonal job in California. So when I had this time off, I went down to Texas and worked for the International Crane Foundation, supporting endangered whooping crane research. Um, totally cool. Its own awesome side adventure. South Texas was really a totally different landscape for me to spend time in and really wild and awesome in its own rights. Um, And at the time, I applied for another position within the Nature Conservancy up here in Colorado, where I work um, as the Laramie Foothills land steward. And one of my duties and part of the job is to work and live out here at Phantom Canyon Preserve. Tell me about this spot. (laughs) Um, It's 1,200 acres. It is about four miles of the North Fork of the Cache River. It is also a fly fishing destination, so I have the great fortune to 
uh, show people the river with a fly fishing rod in hand. Makes for a pretty great day. Even some ding dong California surfers. <laughs> yeah, you've been trying your hand at it, and I want to I want to pick your brain about your experience a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's a big part of this place, and we've got lots of awesome landscapes to protect up here. Um, I do think just talking about the history of this place briefly is important. Um, the nature conservancy purchased the property in 1987. So we've been up here for a long time. And since then we've secured 27 conservation easements in the area, protecting over 30,000 acres from development. Um, and this place is really a patchwork of private and public land. So we've promoted that mode of conservation in the area by connecting landowners and government agencies and student groups and, you know, community groups. It's just, it's really powerful stuff. And again, you can't affect change nearly as well if you aren't part of the landscape. And so I live out here so that I can be a part of the community and have those difficult conversations, which go so much better when you've spent some time working with somebody on the fence or spend some time fishing with somebody on the river. So anyway, we're a part of this landscape and we're working to protect it. Yeah. And I got to fly fish for my first time. Yeah, the yeah day. you did. Dude. Yeah. And it's hey, a blast. You, you picked it up pretty quick. I, I appreciate it. You gave me very um, structured instructions. Yeah. And I followed those instructions. How'd that go? And it, well, I, I was able to at least cast out without I was able to by the end of the first day get the fly generally where I wanted it to land that's huge I mean speaking from my own experience it took me a while and there's no substitute for just getting out there and trying and the great thing about fly fishing is even when it's not going well, you're generally in a pretty awesome place. Yeah, you're in the middle of a river. For a cool hike, yeah. Well, I, I was thinking about the temperature of fly fishing. If, on mm-hmm. a nice warm day, mm-hmm. standing in a cool river in fly fishing waders, so mm-hmm. you're not wet, but you're just cooled down a little bit, is a very nice temperature yeah. to be for a few hours. It's a good day, yeah. And in trout specifically like cold water. So you're usually, I mean, if you're trout, if you're fly fishing for trout, you'll usually find yourself in that situation. Yeah. And one, another thing that I really enjoyed about it and having you teach me how to do it was how much you were pointing out within the river that was not apparent to me. Mm. For example, if there's a rock and then there's a little white water going over it, you said that the trout will generally hang out on the side mm. of those little white water patches um, and wait for nutrients to flow down. And it makes it a little bit easier for them to hang out. Before you you mentioned that to me, I was just seeing a river, <laughs> right? So it's like you were able to give me a, a pair of metaphorical binoculars and just see everything more closely and more vividly, which is really fun for me. It doesn't actually matter what I am learning about if someone can explain to me more details about mm-hmm. that thing yeah. with enthusiasm and clarity, I'm going to be interested too. It just makes the whole experience more rich, doesn't it? I mean, to know a little bit more about 
where you are and what's happening out there. And I mean, it's going to make you a better fisherman too. And yeah, you're right. I mean, those fish like to hang out in places where it's easy to hold their place in the water. So slower water, usually behind rocks and eddies or along the bank. We were fishing in pretty high water. So that was definitely the case when we were out there. And um, yeah, they're looking for food to move in that little conveyor belt right on the side of the rock right to them so they can just get out of their safe spot, grab that fly and swim back in it's very zen i'm excited to do a lot more fishing through the summer as i'm in colorado Mm -hmm. and wyoming montana um i yeah i I have not done much river fishing in my life at all i've I've probably spearfished i don't know five times as much as i have ever put a a fly or ever put a pole in the water. Yeah. And I have done a few, a few, like, you know, first fish I ever caught was a 35 pound halibut in Homer, Alaska. <laughs> when I was like 12, my dad took yeah. me up to Homer and we did a, a fishing trip out there and we were just pulling in huge fish, right? It's the halibut capital of the world, mm-hmm. I believe. And that then was my, my intro to fishing. We also did a little trip around a few of those island, uh, Alaskan islands in the summer. Wow. Sick. Yeah. My dad, my brother, and I, and we would kayak. We, we got dropped off in a, um, a biplane and then, would, and then had all our camping gear and would kayak from one little island mm-hmm. to the next. And uh, we were catching fish and grill, yeah. m- grill, grilling it over a fire. But beyond that, <clears throat> fishing in Santa Cruz, I've never really enjoyed because we're out on a boat for – in in my experience, it's always too long. <laughs> like a day out on a boat because you're, you smell gas a lot of the time. Mm. There's a huge amount of gas smelling and you're just out – in the like on the water and there's no shade and did i mention the gas yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it sounds always, like that's important to you well that's i i think that i just had a few santa cruz fishing experiences where i was like i i surf i'm yeah. out here enough in the water i don't need to sunburn myself like way out i love spear fishing yeah. That's the shit because yeah. you're in a totally new environment. Mm-hmm. It's like you're you're in space at war. Yeah. Like you're you're upside down sometimes shooting fish. And then you <laughs> look up at these kelp forests and yeah. you see the sun shining uh-huh. through and you're holding your breath and it's just a lot more intense. Uh-huh. That's pretty rad that you've spent more time spearfishing than the other mode of fishing. Oh, way more, <laughs> way more. And in Santa Cruz, there's a there's and and I'm not, I'm still basically a kook spear fisherman. Like I I'll go down. I will not go down past forty feet. And I have never shot a fish that could really mess me up. I feel like there's there's different there's a there's a threshold that you cross. Like yeah. Spear fishing is dangerous. Mm. Because you're running out of air constantly, but it's all, it also becomes more dangerous when you start to try and hunt fish Mm -hmm. that are stronger than you. Yeah. So guys that will get all, that'll shoot, you know, yellowtail or Uh bluefin tuna or even some psychos will, will try and hunt marlin. (laughs) It does just so much stuff that can go wrong in that situation. So I keep it to the kelp beds 
around California, which I just love. And the the point of that is that there are a lot of small, tasty fish. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we have all all different kinds of rockfish, uh, and we also have lingcod and white sea bass and. I mean, it's just, it's just really an amazing experience to be able to go out. And, and even if you're shooting rockfish, you can shoot three of them and you're feeding a small party. Yeah. You know, I don't like hanging out with more than six people anyway. So <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I get if you can't feed all the people you're with, you're with too many people. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I've, I've really enjoyed that. But um, this is totally new to me. Yeah. Fishing in a, a stream with, you know, these 600 foot cliffs above me it feels like a totally different sport it it is um yeah you still got to think like a fish you still spend a lot of days walking away from the the river and and you'll hear the line uh that's why they call it fishing not catching (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i love obviously i spend a lot of time doing it i really just love to be out there in riparian areas around rivers I just think it's so cool and it's such a dynamic environment. I mean, you're you're watching for different insects to hatch throughout the day. You're watching the sun because you know that's going to affect the water temperature. Some people even carry around a little water thermometer so they know exactly what temperature the water is and where the fish might be in the shade or in the sun at that time. You're watching your back for uh, you know other other animals to be around and and watching your feet for rattlesnakes when you're hiking around. It's a cool sport, but, um, you know, I, I like spending time in a boat, too. I don't mind that. And I would like to hear a little more about your halibut fishing story because a 35-pound halibut as a young kid is a pretty cool thing. Dude, I hadn't even hit puberty yeah. yet. But I also can take no credit for it, right, because they took us out to this spot that was amazing. And you you drop a line in the water, and within 10 minutes, you're pulling up a fish. Mm. Did you guys eat that halibut? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we ate the halibut and because, because we did that before we did our canoe trip. So we brought some halibut on that trip, and then we, we froze the rest of it and brought it all back home. <laughs> yeah, tasty fish. I've heard halibut, um, reeling a halibut up from, you fish them pretty deep, right? Yeah. I've heard that reeling a halibut up is like reeling up plywood you know, a piece of plywood up. <laughs> oh yeah. Ply- a sheet of plywood up from the bottom of the ocean because when they turn on their side, it's like you can't. Again, I hadn't hit puberty yet. I remember the fishing pole being, um, you know, what, what's it called when the, the pole is in the part of the boat that, you know, that, sure. Just in a holder, that yeah. hold the holder. Right. <laughs> and I was using both hands on the reel, <laughs> like a crank. And my dad was holding. Oh yeah. Yeah. The pole. Yeah. It was a Man, we went out for job. just a couple, um, salmon fishing trips in Lake Michigan when I was growing up. And it, it's an absolute workout to crank one of those suckers out of the water, especially if you're prepubescent. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you were. So, so my question now that I'm going to be spending, um, some time out here and, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but I, I'd be stoked to get into it is, you know, fly fishing versus rod and reel fishing for me, mm. because I enjoyed fly fishing. I can already tell like, I, bow hunting is, is the thing that I want to actually want to get really good at mm-hmm. partly because of the intensity. Like I really enjoy the intensity of being out there with a bow, trying to hunt a larger animal hmm. fishing this summer. I really just want to catch my dinner as much as possible. Yeah. And you were mentioning that rod and reel 
fishing out here is a potentially a good option that's a little bit easier yeah i mean especially if you're a new fly fisherman and you're looking to catch fish to keep um i think you'll get into more fish if if you have a a traditional spin rod in your hand um not always true i mean if you arrive on a stretch of river and the fish the water surface is just boiling with fish coming up for flies on the surface you can land fish pretty easily but um there's sort of there's an ethic in fly fishing of catch and release and so you'll find that a lot of fly fishermen don't keep fish um yeah i know i see you squinting at me so weird Uh, i don't get it it, well you don't get it because you haven't caught one yet yeah i i guess but but you're (laughs) fishing to eat the fish i know it's a weird thing i get it i totally get it and it's another thing i'm like conflicted about and it's part of the reason i'm drawn to it no i get it i I don't think that there's i don't have a a huge ethical issue yeah i just i go out to hunt because I want to get something to eat. Yeah. And I want, and I enjoy the experience on the trip to go yeah. get that thing to eat. It's primarily what drives me too. But, um, man, when you get a big trout on the end of a fly rod and you can feel like the electric pull of that fish just attached through the line to your hand, to your arm, to your whole being, I mean, it's just powerful. It's just cool. I mean, I, I don't need to keep a fish to have a cool experience out there. Uh, and I hate that uh had to make that fish struggle for a few minutes. But when you let them go, I mean, they're still pretty electric. They just flash right back into the water. And I don't know, sometimes after I do that, I just kind of like sit back and sigh a sigh of relief that doesn't come from doing much else. Hmm. And what kind of um, hooks are you using? And what are the different types of hooks? Hmm. And what is the impact on yeah. fish's mouths? Yeah, no, rest? good questions and good stuff to think about. And there's a lot of conversation and debate about this. Um, I use barbless hooks, uh, which is common in the fly fishing world. You can crimp down the barb on a hook. If you don't do that, that barb is it will help to keep the hook in the fish's mouth, but it also makes it a lot harder to release that fish after you've caught it. Um, so using barbless hooks is a great way to not tear up the fish's mouth too much before you release it. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got um, trouble hooks, they call them, which are essentially, um, there's a single shank with three barbed hooks or more coming out of the bottom of the hook. And when a fish gets tangled up in a trouble hook, it it truly gets into some trouble and it's really can be kind of hard to extract that hook from the fish's mouth. So if you're planning on doing catch and release, I strongly recommend using barbless hooks. Um, it does make it a little more difficult to land a fish sometimes, but it's going to be a lot less uh, detrimental to the health of that fish as well. But if you're you if you are fishing to eat the fish, well, I, but the problem then, right, is that you're, the thing that I love about spear fishing, and I don't think you get this with any other kind of fish, mm-hmm. is you know the fish that you want to shoot. Yeah, you never are going to shoot a fish that That's you don't want to eat. Yeah, although you'll find. Potentially, when you get further into fly fishing and you're fishing in different conditions, you can cast to a specific fish you see feeding. So wow. you can pick a f- it's, it's It starts to look more like hunting the better you get in, in certain water. Um, I mean, really good fly guides. And, you know, it sounds like you would consider yourself still uh, a learner and a novice in spear fishing. I feel the same way about fly fishing, even though I've been doing it for a few years. Um, just because I compare myself to people that are really good and these guides that are really good will go out there and be like, there's a fish he's feeding on mayflies. They're size eight or probably smaller size 20, but 
they'll then they'll be like, okay, I'm going to tie up one of these flies on the bank, or I'm going to pull one of these flies out of my my kit here and toss it right in the right spot, and that fish is going to come up and take that fly. So it gets complex, and you can fish two specific fish. All right. Yeah, it's a it's a whole world. I yeah. mean, there is infinite knowledge to learn, and that's why you get we get 80 year old guys hiking the canyon to go out there and fly fish into old age. And they've been lifelong fly fishermen and they're still learning more and their knowledge is incredible. And not only do they know how to catch fish, but they're equally aware of changes in the river throughout the day of the ecology of the place and different insects hatching. And Oh, there's fewer salmon flies this year and the golden stones aren't really out right now. And the water's real warm. So I, this is true of people who get really into spin rod fishing, but as a f- new fly fisherman, it really jives with my sensibilities as a biologist and naturalist guide because you're just having to be super aware of the ecology of a place to mm-hmm. be proficient. And why do people knock rod and reel fishing? I suppose it's... And is that the term that you would use? You know, you call a fly rod a rod. I was told this okay. by somebody early on. You don't ever call it a pole for some reason. Um, I think both modes of fishing could be called rod and reel. Okay. Um, but I've heard it called fly fishing versus traditional or spin rod fishing. Um, I don't know if people have other names for it, but that's what I've heard. Okay. And why do people knock spin? I just think it's seen as more of like a, a Bubba way of fishing, you know, <laughs> like sitting out there with a can of worms and waiting for a fish to come by and eat that worm. It's just like a more uh, perceived as a more sort of uh, prosaic way to fish. Do you think that it's comparable to rifle versus bow hunting? I see. I hear people draw those comparisons, which I I think is true in some ways and too different to compare in other ways. Um yeah, you know, like like archery, I think it requires a little more um, time in the water, a little more skill, more practice to become proficient, which certainly seems to hold true, archery versus rifle, um, which is not to say that spin rod fishing isn't very difficult sometimes, and finding an animal with a rifle isn't, and harvesting it with a rifle isn't very difficult sometimes, mm. but it takes a bit more practice to become proficient. And just like um, in archery, you need to get much closer to an animal um, in order to harvest the animal, usually to find success. I think you need to um, maybe not be physically closer to an animal, but I think you need potentially more knowledge about the environment in order to understand how to, to, to get to an animal. If I, were going, if I were going to get into traditional fishing this summer because I want to catch my food, what kind of barb would you recommend? I mean, if you're looking to catch and keep fish, barbed hooks, Get the I mean, barbed hook. which is standard. I right. mean, barbless hooks are non-standard and usually people have to crimp down their own barbs in order to have a barbless hook. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, just keep your hooks as they are. Tell me about your first, uh, elk that you shot. Sure. Yeah. Um, cause that was, seemed like one of the reasons why you came out to, to Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. I was definitely looking to get into big game Western hunting. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up in Wisconsin 
whitetail hunting was the, our primary interest, although we did all kinds of different hunting. And so I was interested in this spot and stock stuff. I've always been um, kind of an endurance sport guy, so I was interested in sort of testing myself in the mountains and physically exerting myself in the pursuit of an animal. I thought that was just a cool idea and, like, I might be good at it, and I knew I loved these animals I'd be pursuing because I'd had some exposure to them. So, yeah, when I got to Colorado, I very quickly made some hunting plans with a buddy, and uh, he drew the tag that we were looking for, so he 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 did the hunt. So you could argue this wasn't my first elk, but his, but this was my first big grand elk hunting experience, and if you've ever been a part of one of those hunts, it feels like you're both the hunter. I'm so excited to do this. No, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I'm so pumped. It's rad. It'll stick with you forever, and, and we lucked into a really incredible experience. Um so we headed out to uh, the western part of the state. We were just east of Meeker, um, kind of in the flat tops area. And fortunately, my mom's cousin has worked as a biologist for the BLM out there for 30, 40 years. So he was able to give us some pretty good local knowledge um, about where we might run into elk at that time of year. It was first rifle. So the aspens were all still golden in the mountains. And the elk were still rutting. So we were hearing bugling elk on this hunt, which is just so cool. I what mean, does it sound like? I can't do a fake elk what? call. Yeah, I do that, actually. Sort of. Is that on, <laughs> on octave? Yeah. I mean, I've heard, I've talked to hunters who are like, it's deafening. I don't know if they're going to come running to your call there, but um, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> Dude, I was turkey hunting um, not too long ago and we forgot the turkey caller. Mm. So I looked up a YouTube video of a guy yeah. calling Turkey and yeah. turned it on full volume on my yeah. phone. Yeah. And the Tom started calling back. <laughs> it was really weird. That's resourceful of you. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. That true millennial <laughs> superpower you've totally, got there. I'm the ultimate millennial hunter. <laughs> Hold on. I've got three bars of service. Yeah. Just wait a second. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, to be around bugling elk is just like if if anyone hasn't done it before, do it. Make a trip the right time of year in Colorado, September, and just get yourself around a bugling elk, and it'll it'll get you deep. I mean, <laughs> you'll feel it in your body, and if you're close, if you're that lucky, yeah, it's deafening. It is just like it's like you're around dinosaurs. I mean. It's special, and you forge some real close bonds with people when you're out there in a cool, wild experience like that. So during this particular hunt, my buddy and I were total novices. I mean, neither of us had ever spent a day elk hunting before, and on our very first day, we just start walking. Right? We're just like, you know what? We're just going to stop and glass and hike and stop and glass and just continue that throughout the day until we find some animals. And there were other hunters in the area, but... Our superpower, our advantage was that we were kind of dumb and willing to just hike as far as it took. <laughs> so we, we hiked ourselves into this little draw, um, took most of the day, and found ourselves eventually positioned between two bugling elk. Um, that down in the valley below us, there's this big herd bull bugling away, lots of cows around him. Just so cool. We were like, how are we going to sneak up on this guy? How are we going to get in there? We, or we didn't have our tactics honed at all by any means. And then all of a sudden, bugling behind us uphill. And we're like, hold on, wait a second. There's more elk in the area. And so it was a satellite bull who was kind of up and behind us, die, coming down into this bigger herd below us. And then for some reason, the herd down below us kind of starts to move our direction in the valley. And so now we've got like converging bugling bulls 
on our spot. And we just lucked into this. I mean, we just put ourselves in the right place at the right time around animals, and they just converged on our location. Will a satellite bull come in to try and challenge the bull, uh, the other bull for its harem? Good question. Elk behavior, man, it's uh, it's something I'm still learning about. Um, I don't know. All right. Yeah, and in this situation, he was moving in to join the bigger herd, and it seemed like maybe the herd bull wasn't too happy about that and moving our direction. And anyway, we're sitting there with our eyes wide. I mean, my buddy's from Missouri. I'm from Wisconsin. Neither of us has seen a bull, an elk this close before, and they're just roaring back and forth in our face, and we're just pissing ourselves but so excited. And this satellite bull was still five by five. It was big. And when it stepped out 30 yards. What's five by five? Uh, five, sorry, five tines on each side. Um, so five tines on an antler on one side, five tines on the antler on the What's other side. What's a tine? Side. A tine is, uh, oh, I know you know. Help me here. <laughs> it's it's a, the, uh, the point, point of yeah, an it's antler. Point. It's yeah. the point of an antler. Five, yeah. We would call it a, a ten-pointer in Wisconsin. Right. <laughs> ten-point buck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a five-by-five five elk. And anyway, um, typically a five-by-five five will be an older animal. Uh, it just takes that long to reach a level of maturity where they have five points on one side. Um, and there are point restrictions in Colorado. You actually can't, if you have a bull tag, you can't shoot a bull, I believe with four tines with less than four tines on a side. So it's a, it's, um, making sure you don't shoot too young of an animal. And was this in September? This is in September. So again, Aspens are blazing. We're out there. Elk are still bugling. Sorry. No, wait, hold on. This was first rifle first week of October. So it was late in the rut, but everything was still lit up. When does archery start? Archery usually starts the early September, late August. Um, usually, yeah, the end of August, early September. And then early October is when rifle starts. Yeah. And um, for non-hunters, this is so that the archers will get an advantage early in the season. Yeah, they kind of get first take. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we were out in first rifle. Um, and anyway, this satellite bull, we didn't have to call it in. We didn't have to do anything but sit there with our eyes open. So we're just so lucky. And the experience was so cool already. But then that animal stepped out to 30 yards. And yeah, we were God lucky and just good shot. Put it on the ground right there. Died almost instantly. What did the shot feel like? Do you remember those moments leading up to it? Well, it was my buddy's tag, so he pulled the trigger, but we were both equally excited about all this. And uh, it's just like heart racing, excitement, nervousness. I don't know. I mean, you're a big wave surfer. I I don't want to compare it to that, but tell me what big wave surfing is like, and I'll tell you if it's like that. Well, it's it's a lot of anticipation leading up to a moment that happens in seconds and needing to control your physicality and yeah. meet that moment completely. You've just described it. You put, yeah, you put the right words to it that were failing me. Yeah, it's just so much. It's overwhelming. But at the same time, you just have to calm yourself, get your breath under control go back to what you've practiced over and over again to make that shot and make sure that that animal dies quickly. Um, that's what an ethical hunter will do. And so, yeah, I mean, you had to hike it all out. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, this is, we're getting, we're not even halfway through this whole adventure. 
because you're right. I mean, we put this gigantic animal on the ground. I, I knew how to field dress animals, but I had literally watched a YouTube video about how to gut an elk the night before the gutless method, because I had never done that before, not thinking there was a chance in hell that we were going to step out there and put an elk on the ground on our first day of hunting ever. Now, like I said, we had been hiking all day, so we were now six miles away and two, uh, sorry, six miles away from the truck and, and uh, 2000 feet below the truck. And there was snow on the ground and there was a snowstorm moving in. So we're like, all right, that was great. We're ecstatic. You know, it's all the mixed emotions of putting an incredible animal on the ground. It feels you're elated. You're sad. You're staring off into space with all these emotions. I mean, it's special. And then you move past that and there's relief and then anxiety because you realize, all right, now the work starts. And so my YouTube video served me. I was able to work with him through that animal and get it quartered out and get all the meat hung up in a tree by dark, which was probably took us two hours. We're total novices out there, but it worked. Um, and then it started to snow and the snow started to pile up and we're like, shit, we've really worked ourselves into a situation here. He's a, uh, he's a jujitsu guy. He's tough, but he had been tweaking his knee all day and his ability to hike at that point was greatly hampered. And so I gave him the gear we had been hiking around with all day and I put a quarter on my back and we just started to hike. I mean, and you leave the rest there. We left the rest hanging in the tree, marked the spot on the GPS and knew we'd have to come back. There was just no way we we're going to get in one trip, right? I mean, this is hundreds of pounds of meat um, and he's hurting bad and it's starting to snow and you're six miles in and we're we're six miles in and two thousand feet below <laughs> and we're not really sure there's no trail this is all off trail so we're stepping over logs and deadfall the whole time and it's now it's dark in a place Did you have on x on your phone never been. i was using on x yeah i bet yeah and it was it was helpful however we thought there was a trail because there was a line on the map and we hadn't been in here before and if this, if nothing, nobody gets anything else from this, just scout your locations beforehand to know how to get in and out of the places you want to go to. Because we walked up to where we thought there was a trail in the dark and found no trail. And by the time we got up there, which is about 1,500 feet above us, we still didn't have 500 feet to go. There was a foot of snow on the ground. I mean, it was really coming down. And my buddy is not wearing good footwear. He's slipping all over the place, continuing to tweak his knee. At this point, he's taking a few steps, stopping because of the pain. Then a few steps stopping his flashlight's dead. Mine is almost dead. I'm using my phone as a light a little bit at this point. So we're just middle of nowhere place. We've never been. I've got a, you know, an elk quarter on my back and my buddy's limping through the woods and we're running out of light. And you know, it was a serious situation. I, I we were reflecting about it later and thinking, you know, we were a few wrong decisions away from survival story. And we just continued on. There's nothing else you can do in that situation. We're stepping over deadfall, getting through this piling up snow. At one point, there's coyotes we're hearing yipping nearby. We're really hoping they're not on top of our meat um, down below us in the valley where this, this elk had been killed. Um, we see a bear in a tree at one point. I met this guy when I was bear guiding in Alaska. Um, we were good buddies up there. And so we were both pretty comfortable around bears. But to see one at night when you've got meat on your back, your imagination runs wild a little bit. And it doesn't add to any sense of calm you may have convinced yourself uh, should be there. So anyway, just one foot after another. And eventually we found some boot tracks in the snow. And we're like, okay, 
We're near a road. My Onyx map's still working. I know that there's at least a road we can get to in about two miles. And so it was around midnight. I didn't have any cell signal, but around midnight when I was finally... But you just downloaded the map before. Yeah, I had a map of the area, but like my phone was dying too. So very soon we were going to run out of our... (laughs) The the whole engine was about to die. Yeah, like we were running on fumes. I mean, our navigational ability was about to go kaput. And I had matches. I had a lighter. I had space blankets. We were somewhat prepared to spend a night in the woods if we needed to, but we didn't want to have to do that. And... uh, right about midnight we got to this road that we knew was there back to where we had peeled off the road and the sense of relief was incredible and we still had two miles to slip and slide down this road to get back to the truck but man i mean it was a serious experience and it was a real roller coaster because of course we were ecstatic and then we were like "Uh oh we might need to spend the night out here and like you said the hunt didn't end until we you know cooked that meat months and months later and every time we just relayed that story and thought about it when one of us was cooking a steak we'd always send a picture to the buddy or sometimes we were eating it together did you walk back the next morning for the rest of the animal we did yeah so um again this guy in the area who uh, was a distant relative incredible guy Uh, i actually called him that night he was my con my sort of my safety contact that i was going to call when we got out of the woods just to let him know that the hunt went okay or whatever but we didn't get out till midnight and we were telling him we'd be back by nine or so so he was actually at the sheriff's office and i just reached him before he filed a report that night that we were missing it out in the woods and they were going to send a search party for us so yeah this is uh this is how midwesterners die in the mountains of colorado and was it easy to hike your way back in to get the rest of the animal the next morning yeah so i mentioned him to 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 point out that he volunteered himself and a friend in the area to hike back in with me the next day my buddy was laid up his knee was totally screwed up um back to that location which i had marked on a map on my phone charged the phone was able to navigate right back to it i mean in daylight it was you feel a little silly because you're just like what were we worried about in daylight there's nothing scary out here at all we were still walking through fresh snow in the mountains six miles and two thousand feet of elevation to pack that animal out so it, it was an 11 hour trip um to get in and back out no wait 11 miles in total and i think about seven hours um for us to do that 11 miles with with the rest of that animal on our backs and you've done a lot of elk hunting since then and nothing yeah i mean a little bit that was that was two seasons ago was my first season and last year i went out with a bow and yeah i still again i lucked into i feel like you make your own luck a little bit by sheer will of just like i'm gonna put myself in a place where nobody else is willing to go but i'm also learning that that's kind of dumb because then you need to hike that animal out of that spot too um but anyway last year i went out with a bow into this area called the mount zirkle wilderness up by the rainbow lakes trailhead i hope i'm not giving away my hunting spot here you totally are <laughs> you just did. i don't think this spot's a secret but i won't give away the exact valley where i found this bull and anyway I hiked up pretty close on a big, much bigger bull last year that was bugling away at me um, in this valley. Were you calling? I wasn't calling, no. And um, that's that's one skill I'd like to cultivate because it could help me so much. Yeah. So it's fun. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I've never done it, but I've I've called turkeys and spent a lot of time out there doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's an engaging form of of communicating oh, yeah. with the animal. Yeah, it's a whole nother level of, of engaging with an animal in an environment and hunting. I mean, when you're communicating with an animal to try to get it to you so that you can harvest it, it's just like... 
Yeah, and the way that uh, elk hunters talk about the different forms of communication oh, yeah. by calling, like yeah. you can pretend that you're another bull, you yeah. can pretend that you're a younger bull, you can like, it's all of these different... Oh, yeah. I, I, I know nothing about it, so I'm going to stop No, talking, we're but. both learning about it, but I do know enough to know there's a lot of nuance there, and if you do the wrong call at the wrong time, that you may send those animals away, so... Like fly fishing, it's a world that is you can just learn and learn and learn forever. It's a lifetime thing, and I don't think anybody would claim to have totally figured it out. Yeah, that was a real big struggle for me turkey hunting this season because I would call too much, and it's so hard not to yeah. because you're just sitting there doing nothing otherwise. Yeah. And you have this little thing yeah. in your hand, you're like, huh, I could use this again. Yeah. This is kind of satiating my fidgety nature. Right. And then you, I'll go out with someone who's better and like dude shut the fuck up yeah like don't call more than some people say more than well, once every 10 minutes yeah it's yeah my i went turkey hunting with my dad a little bit growing up and that was my experience too i mean you, you are fidgety and you you don't i mean i think it's one advantage of going out for a longer hunt maybe a multi-day hunt because you can kind of settle into the rhythm of things and slow down a little bit and get all those nerves out and you know it's pretty quiet out there generally. I mean, we're talking about bugling elk, but there are so many quiet moments in between and the rhythm and this, there's a lot of quietude in nature. And if, yeah, if you're not, um, if you're not bringing that into your own calling techniques and you're calling too much, it's not going to be productive. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> I would be remiss if we didn't talk about rattlesnakes before we wrap this up. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we're out here mm-hmm. fly fishing, enjoying ourselves. The you know we went on a hike, yeah, uh, or a run, a trail run down, and you were kind of joking. Oh yeah, well you'll I'll go first, you'll go second because first guy wakes up the rattlesnake, second guy usually gets bit. Yeah, and we heard a rattle on our first. Uh, yeah, first run down. If I'm not mistaken, it was I was out in the front, and uh, not because I'm faster than you, but just because <laughs> it's a narrow trail. And uh, yeah, you're faster than me. And so I woke the snake up, and you uh, got buzzed. I got buzzed. I believe you said it was your first time getting buzzed by a rattlesnake. It sure was. I'll and wake then, you up, and then two days later. Yeah, uh, two days later, I really ate my words because. Uh, I was out front again on a trail and my girlfriend was behind me and we were out in this river Canyon and I was out there to fish and, um, the dog was out front he's galloping through some pretty tall grass and I'm walking behind him and we were literally talking about snakes. I mean, we were looking for them, but the grass was pretty high and, uh, I must've stepped right over the snake and then my girlfriend, Kelsey stepped right on it and she got bit. And, uh, yeah, it was an intense experience for really the next 24 hours. Um, I just want to say that I feel that I really embodied my skills as a paparazzi photographer <laughs> yeah. over this whole ordeal. Um, Popped really, out of the bushes really and showed started up. taking photos. Yeah. Well, a helicopter landed. A, yeah. a helicopter came down into the meadow and then 20 firefighters all started hiking down. Yeah. 
and your girlfriend's badass and she was just like smiling and I'm like, okay, this is cool. She's going to want these photos. So I got the whole sequence of all the firefighters around her, lifting her up in a stretcher, throwing her in and then taking off into the sunset. You've just described the whole experience. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think people are going to have varying perspectives on that whole ordeal. But um, we were glad you were there for sure. And um, she's really grateful for those photos. You're right. And yeah, at first we thought this was a dry bite, which is when there's no envenomation, which does sometimes happen. I was able to circle back and see this snake. It was a three to four foot prairie rattlesnake. It was big. So we were pretty dang nervous about that. But she's like, I'm not feeling anything. I'm okay. Like there's a puncture wound in her leg and it's bleeding a little bit. But She's not having any systemic reactions. She's not having difficulty breathing or faint or throwing up or anything. And she's a veterinarian. (laughs) She's a veterinarian, so she's kind of doing the bit of, like, self-assessment diagnosis. I mean, she's treated rattlesnake bites in in other animals before. Um, Yeah, we got her positioned under a tree, and I ran up and called 911, and... uh, you know, it's kind of a get the chopper situation (laughs) because we're at the bottom of this canyon where there's just no way we're going to hike her out on a stretcher, so... Dude, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. It is a true honor to me that you are just some dude who listens to my podcast. (laughs) That's how I would describe myself. It's just some dude who listens to a podcast. I mean, you just reached out to me, and now I'm here, and we just recorded a kick-ass show, dude. Well, the pleasure is all mine, and really, it's been great to have you around. Um, glad to have a new friend, and hopefully, we can get up in the mountains sometime soon. Oh, we will, we will. And you are an amazing communicator, and you are. What was it that you said the the other day? We want to close the gap between what we know and what we do. Yeah, was that it? Yeah, I think there's a lot we know we should be doing, and we're just not doing it. And um, that's a, that's a really a place in an opportunity where i see i can make a difference so yeah let's let's take what we know and apply it and do it every once in a while amen brother you are a fairly private person would you like to remain uncontactable <laughs> or is there a place where people can reach you Ah, uh, well you're right i am somewhat private but um I do value community, and I'm more than happy for people to reach out to me. I'm not on social media, but if people want to get a hold of me and ask questions or, or whatever, um, you can contact me probably best at my private email address. That is kjgrunewald at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, give me a shout. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That's our show. If you want to hear more episodes like it, you might dig number 208 titled Understanding Axis Deer with Jake Muse or episode number 215 with hunter, diver, and mother Kimmy Werner. That's episode 208 or 215. I'm going to play you out the song called Hazar by King Rom. Rom is an Iranian musician who was a guest on this podcast a while back. Very talented, and I will link to his band page in the show notes below. 
If you would like to get an email from me about once a week uh, to make sure that you don't miss a new episode as well as get my most recent articles when I send them out, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and sign up. Kyle.surf is also where you can sign up for my monthly subscription box of goodies. Thank you once again to the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting this podcast. Thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals, and thank you to RPM Fitness. If you want to get 10% off at either Santa Santa Cruz Medicinals or RPM Fitness, you can go to their websites in the link below, type in the code name KYLE10, all caps, and get 10% off your first order. Hope you're all having a great day out there. Get in the water, whatever body of water you are closest to, lake, stream, river, bathtub, or ocean. See you guys soon. Oh, 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 oh,